0: Support for Boston Public Radio comes from the law firm of Davis Malm. Whether you're a buyer, seller, investor, or lender, their business attorneys understand that each deal has unique needs and requirements. Building client relationships one transaction at a time. Learn more
1: at davismalm.com.
2: Today on BPR Live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library, Starbucks once facilitated conversations about race between their baristas and their customers. A lot of good that did. Now they have to shut 8,000 stores for bias training because the manager had two black customers arrested for trespassing. We'll take your calls and ask you if we'll ever get this national conversation about race right. For all the partisan bickering in D.C. and even inter-party friction in West Wing, there's some unity today as voices from across the political spectrum remember Barbara Bush. We'll remember her, too, in our Politics Roundup.
3: At noon, Juliet Kaim is here, which means it's Mueller time. We'll go over the latest developments in the Russian investigation. Then we look at the erosion of America's democracy by way of a terrific new book, The Road to Unfreedom, which looks at how Putin's playbook to ravage the Ukraine is the same one he's using to upend the United States. That and more is next on Boston Public Radio. He's Jim Browdy. I am Marjorie Egan. You are listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. It's Wednesday. We are broadcasting live. From the Boston Public Library. Do
2: you have like a nanosecond of panic there for no, a minute? I Where, just, who I, am I and why I, am I, I here? I was adjusting
3: the volume on my headset. Oh, you were. You know, I was one of those things. That put the headphones on. I, I was like, what Whoo! and I had to turn it down a little bit.
2: Nice to see you.
3: Nice to see you too, Jim. So
2: three years ago, Starbucks was serving up coffee with a shot of race relations. We talked about it at the time, inviting baristas and customers. Remember this talk about what is probably the most polarizing topic in America? A lot of good that did. Now they have to shut down eight. Thousand stores for racial sensitivity training because a manager had two black customers arrested in Philadelphia for trespassing. Nearly 10 years ago, there was the beer summit. Remember growing out of a little conflict in my hometown of Cambridge, our nation's attempt to have that conversation about race. Now there's the barista summit. Even though there have been plenty of stories in the news recently that highlight our fraught and sometimes fatal relationship with race, from Cambridge police possibly using excessive force in a black Harvard student. To Stephon Clark, maybe Starbucks is getting so much attention because the fact that something like this can happen there is a reminder that it is happening everywhere. If two black guys can't sit in a Starbucks, a franchise that has branded itself as, I think you could say, enlightened, then where... Can they go? 877-301-8970. It's almost like we're back to the Woolworth's lunch counters in Greensboro. Can we ever get this conversation about race going? I'll tell you, it was Chelsea when we were talking to her this morning. I was wondering why this one bothered me in some ways more than ones in which there were far worse consequences. And it is because of what I just said, which was Chelsea's notion, is that it's this is Starbucks. Yeah. This is the most mundane unthreatening sort of environment. And two black guys, because they are sitting there, waiting for a meeting, by the way, sitting there, are uh, tossed out. And by the way, I've been in a Starbucks in Central Square. I don't go back anymore. I don't know if I ever told you this, where the bathroom was supposedly out of order uh, and white people were allowed to use the broken bathroom and black people, I mean, this is only anecdotal, uh, but uh, uh, I did see it. Were this is like it's ridiculous. It is just so
3: black people weren't uh, allowed in the bathroom in Central Square, uh, in Cambridge.
2: Uh, yeah, that is correct. Uh, at least on one instance, I should say it wasn't like I was doing a research. But one time I was there, that was the circumstance. It's not about Starbucks, though. It's about again, if in the most mundane, unthreatening environments. The sign basically says blacks are not welcome, and that's essentially – In by the way, this part of Philadelphia, which is where my mother lived in her later years, Rittenhouse Square, is one of the ritziest, ritziest parts of town – where I would argue most residents consider themselves, to use the word again, the most enlightened and the most tolerant in this sort of thing. And these two guys, you know, sitting while black. Isn't that what uh, Renee Graham said yeah. in her piece? And uh, the other thing she said in her piece in The Globe, which I thought was true, white people are scared of black people. I mean, that really is what it is in 2018. As frightening as that concept of fear is, that's what it is. Our number is 877 Eighty-nine, seventy. What's your reaction to? You can react to any of these incidents. I mean, there's that little kid. We're going to talk to Andrea later. That 14-year-old kid who was shot That's
4: outside Detroit, the,
2: Detroit when he's looking for directions. A little black kid, but but this one is one that has really stuck with me in ways that some of the others have uh, have not.
3: Well, yeah, it's and also the fact that it is in kind of a ritzy neighborhood. You would think that. Um, well, I guess that's not really fair. Why would you think you were more enlightened in a ritzy neighborhood? That's not fair. Well, at I know all. the
2: neighborhood. It's not because I said ritzy, I shouldn't have ended there. I know the neighborhood. I spent a lot of time there when I was a kid, and particularly yeah. in my mother's later years. It's uh, uh, trust me. It's a it's a square surrounded by liberals who consider themselves the most tolerant of tolerant people, and they would say this kind of thing could never happen. And
3: when you see the video, you see uh, there's up to six cops at one point in the in in the Starbucks, and you see them moving the chairs, you know, putting the chairs down, like getting ready to, to to. uh, for for a confrontation kind of, exactly, that didn't happen. Exactly. And taking these guys out in handcuffs, which is obviously very humiliating. But you know something? I, I kind of think that all the conversations we've had about this, about this 14-year-old uh, child who was shot mm. looking for directions on the way to school, about uh, um, the Stephen Car- uh, Clark Stephon. conversation we had last week about Stefan Clark, about being shot multiple times in the back in his backyard. And, and the videos are really... Um, turning the heads of, of a lot of white people who were oblivious to this, who weren't really paying attention you say to say that?
2: We've been watching these videos for years. Well, What's w- changing? It's
3: more. It's more. I mean, everybody got very upset about Rodney King. That was like in the 90s, right? I'm talking
2: about more recent times.
3: I, I do think there's a realization among more people, at least people I talk to. And what are they doing about it? They're not doing anything about it, but they're at least knowing that it's real, that it's not an exaggeration. They're not siding with the police officers all the time the way they might have just instinctively because they say, well, you know, cops are running in and have to worry about coming home safe at the end of the day, all that kind of stuff. They're looking at it just like they're looking at that situation with the kid in Cambridge. Yeah, but
2: can I I, I tell you again to distinguish this for a second and then we'll get to your calls. I think why this one has gotten to me as deeply as I think it has is it's easy to say when you see a shooting for example well you know that's on the extremes and it's not that we're heartless and not that we let's assume for argument's sake like you're right and people do care and are troubled by, as they should be by some of these shootings it's easy to rationalize even if you don't accept it and say well you know Crime or cops or something or alleged crime is on the extremes. This is, is who who listening to the show has not been to a Dunkin' Donuts or a Starbucks and sat down uh, to have a cup of coffee or sat down not to have a cup of coffee to wait for somebody who they're going to meet with and then have a cup right. of coffee or a donut. Everybody has had this experience. Everybody could be these guys, except for the fact not everybody is two black guys who got let out, as you say, in handcuffs. This is as bad – and by the way, let me just say one other thing. I don't know if you heard the head of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, who I guess has been hired by uh, uh, Schultz or somebody at Starbucks to conduct this sensitivity training. But I have to say uh, uh, the head of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund – when she was asked the question this morning about what are you going to teach, what, what are you, what's going to happen there, she had no answers for anything. This is a, I mean, with all due respect to Howard Schultz, and I know people think he's the second coming. This is a CYA kind of experience, as far as I'm concerned. And until proven otherwise, I want to I want to I want to know that this was legit, that this was a this is a real effort because it shouldn't have taken this for them to do something if they're so concerned. About racial strife in this country. 877 And by the way, the reason, that I shouldn't finish the sentence. The reason they're worried is because there's a boycott Starbucks effort right. that started a minute and a half after this video went public. You know,
3: there's a story from Market Watch about the, how much money they're going to lose. By the
2: lose. way, the 14-year-old kid was not actually hit. He was shot at. Thank you. For our colleagues, for clarifying that, or my apologies. The, Go ahead. The, uh,
3: the uh, story in Market Watch about how much it's going to cost Starbucks to shut down for how one much afternoon, is it? Uh, twelve million dollars in lost revenue. But the point is that they mentioned that the Starbucks shut down once before in two thousand eight. Do you remember why they shut down no, in two thousand eight? No, I don't remember that at all. Uh, well, they shut down in uh, for three hours in two thousand eight uh, to reorient employees toward perfecting the art of espresso making.
2: That's fabulous.
3: So I just thought that was sort of fun. But am
2: I not right? Is twelve million dollars is far less than the the number of customers they were going to lose if they don't do something in reaction to this this crap in philadelphia is that not safe yeah this well i think so it, i think it, it, they got to prove that right. they really care about this as opposed to some crisis manager they've hired has said you got to act quickly and dramatically and the way you act quickly and dramatically is shut the stores down what is it three hours they're going to shut them down or some yeah, such thing that. let's take some calls 877-301-8970 let's
3: go to eric in shrewsbury hi eric hi eric hi, hi. how are
5: you guys good hi. Yeah, so I'm just wondering why, uh,
6: why is Starbucks taking it on the chin so much for this when it was one barista? And it kind of seems to me like the cops could have easily diffused the situation. They didn't need to arrest these guys. They could have talked to them, see what they were up to, you know, asked them maybe to leave if they, they thought they should. But they got thrown in jail. It kind of reminds me of that United, that guy getting pulled off that United flight. Dr.
2: Dow.
5: United
6: took all the slack. Yeah,
5: remember that? And yeah.
6: The United got all the flack, but it was, a, to me, it seemed like a pretty aggressive top on there, yanking the guy off and punching him. It wasn't a swordist a, a or a flight attendant that,
2: uh, that did that. I, well, Eric, I think the answer is they should be. You're, you make a good point. They should be added to the list. They did, uh, I think, overreact, but I guess, I don't know if it was a barista, the manager, whoever was in charge there, who made the initial call. Based upon at least what we know so far, is that they were actually sitting there, and had yet to order a drink, and uh, so I guess you're right. We should spread the blame more broadly, but it was initiated by the very poor judgment exercised by whoever it is decided it was a matter worthy of uh, calling the cops. But thanks for the point, Eric. We appreciate it. Eight seven seven three zero one. 89 well, The other thing 70. is,
3: you know, okay, if you went in if you went there and you're a middle-aged white woman with your friend and you're sitting there waiting for a third person and you use the bathroom while you're waiting, I just can't see the scenario ending. Calling the cops? Where I don't I think would be, so. Have, I would have the cops called on me. I just don't see that well, happening.
2: Well, Eric made a good point. And if the cops were called, which they would not be, do you think the cops would have handcuffed that uh, no. white woman? I don't think no, so. No,
3: and I think it would have been one cop, maybe two cops. No one would be putting the, uh, moving the, the tables and the chairs around anticipating a brawl. I mean, it was it was clear. You know, Renee Grant's thing is that white people are afraid of black people, and I think she's got a point.
2: Uh, Let's go to Michael in Boston. You're next on Boston Public Radio. Thank you very much for calling in. Hi, Michael.
3: Uh, Hi, hi. Can you hear me?
2: We can. Yes.
7: Okay, great. Um, I think you know there's a lot of interesting topics and a lot of you know good things that we could talk about in terms of race relations and what to learn from this. But there is an other side of this story. Um, that you didn't mention in your intro. What's that? Um, the local, the local police seem to describe the manager was simply enforcing a nationwide, uh, company-wide policy that I know that you can't sit in a Starbucks if you don't buy anything. You can't use a Starbucks if you don't buy anything, which is why I usually don't go to Starbucks. Um, and they were the the two patrons were kindly asked by the manager. Uh, that if they couldn't stay unless they, buy, unless they bought something, I think most people, most people of all races, would have either bought something or kindly left. Um, that's what I would have done. And, but they decided to defiantly stay, and they they said, you know, if you continue to do this, we're going to have to call the cops. You can't. It's against policy. And the cops came, and according to the local police chief, um, he said that his, his police officers did everything by the book and did the right thing, and they... Kindly told the patrons this and that they they should just leave and that that's the rule. And they said no. And they basically egged the police on to arrest them. Okay, Michael. I, okay,
2: Michael. We got it. Let, let me re- respond in two ways, if I can. And then you can respond to me. If I was the one sitting in that Starbucks uh, in Philadelphia, I think they would have called the cops. Well,
3: you you are a bad example. You think you should, they would have called
2: the cops?
7: I would have called the cops on you.
3: But, well, uh, I think
2: that's but, unlikely. And two. I don't only think that's unlikely. I think it's impossible. And number two, if it turns out this was just uh, following company policy, why did the CEO of the company fly to Philadelphia to apologize face-to-face to to the two men? And why have they shut their stores down for three hours, 8,000 of them, for racial sensitivity training if all they were doing is following the rules? Even the people who run Starbucks don't agree with you.
7: I, well, I, well the, the owners of CES, uh, of, of not CVS, uh, of Starbucks.
4: Yeah.
2: Uh,
7: I, th- I think everyone knows why they did it. They're what? afraid. They're afraid of the mob, and they're afraid what of what mob? Meaning, a
2: bl- what does that mean? A black mob?
7: No, the liberal mob, the left, the left-wing mob, who say anyone who doesn't do anything we like about race is a horrible person and should be boycotted, um, and they want to appease these people. On a, a scenario which is pretty mundane, people break the rules at Starbucks, get asked to leave, refuse to, and the
2: cops get called. Michael, let me do, do me a favor. Do me a favor. We don't allow two people, one person to call twice in the same day. You have two hours and 40 minutes to find me a white person who was thrown out of any of the 8,000 Starbucks in America because they sat there without a drink too long. If you find it, call back. And we'll take your call. And thank you very much for calling to begin with. 877-301-8970. With all due respect, talk about denial of race being a factor. I have sat in these Starbucks in Davis Square probably for 45 minutes in a soft leather chair waiting to be joined by a friend. People do this all the time. The policy, in quotes, was enforced because of the color of their skin. And it's not because of my politics, Michael, that I believe that. It's because them's the facts.
3: Actually, you've been arrested on several occasions, Jim. I have. Uh, what, what well, what then I that?
2: was a bad example. <laughs>
3: You were a bad example. What one are you talking <clears throat> about? I, I could see just where a certain belligerence would begin and there'd be a back of you. But know, they were not you, belligerent know who I am? No, I'm talking about you. I'm talking about your situation. Okay, then I was a bad example. situation Okay, escalate. let's pick you.
2: Do you think you would have been no, arrested? No. And thrown out? No,
3: absolutely not. Eight seven seven three oh one eighty nine seventy. Let's go to Tom in Rockport. Hi, Tom.
2: Hi. Tom, there's before there's Tom, any... before you go ahead, can I read one thing to you? This is for the prior caller. It's not always clear whether sitting in a Starbucks or using a Starbucks restroom without purchasing any items is allowed. A company spokesperson said Starbucks does not have a broad policy prohibiting people from using restrooms or sitting inside for free, allowing individual stores to set their own rules. So my apologies. Take it away, Tom.
5: Okay. So I think the issues that people do not understand are the issues of... Being a minority and the issues of power, you know, when Dylan Roof killed those people in South Carolina and those poor women were forced to confront, you know, face him, and they said we have to fight it in our hearts to forgive you. I made a a black humor joke at the time that, you know, obviously white people are deficient in, you know, because a white person it would never have happened if it was a white kid who had shot. I mean, a black kid who shot, you know, a white church up. And, you know, he probably wouldn't have uh, arrived alive to be arraigned. And I said, you know, people, maybe black people, white people are deficient in an empathy gene. But, you know, it, I, wasn't, I think I'm not far off because there was a recent study on power. And when people gain positions of power, there are apparently neurological changes that go on in the brain where they cannot read empathic cues. So, if you're born white in this country, you are born into a position of power over minorities that you're not even aware of. And you are going to view, I mean, you talked about, you know, people's, white people's fear of black violence. The history of this country is white violence against blacks, and yet it's viewed the other way around. And I, Fine you, know, point. It, you know, anyway, you know, uh, having, you know, grown up. Jewish in a town out in Western Mass, where, you know, when I was a kid 60 years ago, Jews were not allowed in that uh, country club, in, in that town. where well, they are now allowed. But, you know, you, you, even even I was not aware of, you know, might been a, a liberal family that, you know, was in favor of civil rights, really understanding what it is, you know, for a, you know, there's a guy on Television, a commentator on CNBC or MSNBC, discussing this the other day, and a white comment. The white commentator was saying, "You know, of course, you know, Starbucks is a place where everybody goes to, re- you know, relax and use the bathroom." And the black guy said, "I never get to use the bathroom without paying." You know, I mean, that's you know, it's just a whole, totally different experience that blacks have in this country. And we, as white people, we have a lot to. Uh, apologize
2: for. Tom, thanks for the call. Callie Crossley just called uh, our control room and said the woman taking the video in the Starbucks noted that other people were also sitting in the cafe without ordering anything. So apparently the policy the caller referred to, which is a non-policy, at least company-wide, was selectively applied.
3: Well, you know what else? These two young men, according to the Washington Post, were held for nine hours before they were released. Again, I, I can't see um I- why, was, why were they held Maybe for nine trying hours? to
2: figure out what their defense was going to be. when they, Not they, the, the two men, when the cops were trying to figure out how do we explain the mess we have gotten ourselves into. But they, they were into. held I for nine that. hours,
3: we would assume, in a cell. I don't know. For sitting in a Starbucks. Uh, I, I don't know. Okay. Um, uh, we are talking about this. We're talking about Starbucks, asking you if we're ever going to make progress. Mm-hmm. Raised in America, I kind of naively think we are, but maybe I'm just being naive. Conversation continues on 897 WGBH, Boston Public Radio.
2: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan were live from our Boston Public Radio studio, the GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. If you're just tuning in, we're talking about Starbucks. Philly style, my hometown, they're closing 8,000 stores nationwide for, I don't know if it's a day or part of a day, for racial sensitivity training. We're asking you if you can train racism away. You know, I mentioned Renee Graham's, I thought, terrific piece in the Globe this morning, and it starts driving while black, walking while black, shopping while black, selling CDs while black, listening to music in a car while black, asking for directions while black, sitting in Starbucks while black. To be black is to always be in the wrong place at the wrong time, because in America, there is never a right place for black people. And by the way, every one of those incidences, I'm sure you know, uh, led to um, something, in most cases, not Starbucks, but something pretty violent uh, happening to the person who was either selling CDs or listening to music in a car or whatever it was. You should read her story. I thought it yeah, pretty powerful. Yeah, it's really good.
3: It's really good. Uh, let's go to Faith in Brookline. Hi, Faith. Hello, Faith. Hey, guys, how are you? Good. Um,
8: So, as we know, there are two different law structures. There's structures for white people and structures for black people. And that's what all of these angry white people are finally getting mad enough to express. And what is confounding and frustrating for me is that police don't see that either, that they have to follow this rule. And they don't. They really don't. They could step back and see the textures of race and why they were called and I feel like that is what needs to happen with police as well as businesses because there's, it's just obvious Yeah, well, and that there is modern day lynching that is in the DNA of, of white people and it's, it hasn't been worked out, just what you guys are saying
3: Well, let's hope it's not lynching um, but you know, I mean maybe you're right and we had this, this retired firefighter who shot this kid Luckily, he missed him, mm-hmm. uh, who just the was looking for directions. It does seem a little over the top. Thank you for the call. Let's go to uh, Harriet in the car. Hi, Harriet. Hello, Harriet.
1: Hi. So here's, let me turn the radio off. I think it makes it easier,
3: right? It does. Yeah, let's
9: see.
2: Can you hear me? We yep. can. Take it away.
9: Okay. So here's what I'm thinking. Starbucks is going to close down. Right. the to try to teach people not to be racist. Okay, I'm a black woman. I'm 67 years old. I don't believe you can teach anybody not to be racist. And I think a lot of people don't even realize they're racist. They're the nicest people in the world and have no idea how racist they are. My problem is, why isn't there any focus on the woman who made the call in the first place? I'd like to see her come out and apologize. Focus on her. Say, Hey, what are you doing? What are you thinking? Apologize. Because everybody at Starbucks
2: didn't participate in this egregious, offensive behavior. Well, by the way, let me do t- two things here. Right. One, I believe if one of our colleagues can check this, I believe that she is no longer there. Did I read that in the last 24 I'm not hours? Sure. If one of our uh, co-workers, is correct. She's no l- longer there. I don't know if it was voluntary or if she was dismissed or what the... Uh, The deal was, but again, until proven otherwise, Harriet, uh, I don't, I mean, my sense is this is a PR move that is directed by, as I said before, one of those crisis managers who says you got to do something really high profile, really fast, as whatever number Marjorie said it's going to cost you, $12 million in business, but that's a lot less than you're going to lose if this boycott movement picks up steam. I mean, Schultz and whatever the CEO's name have got to demonstrate this is a sincere response to a problem rather than just a cya response to a problem so i don't know what they're going to teach are it i guess we have to stay tuned thank you for your uh, call 877-301-897 and you know and also we, as we said earlier remember the thing with the cups race together i mean with all due respect even if that was well intended the notion what your the customer and the barista are going to have a conversation about race in this country? I mean, was that anything other than a PR stunt? And by the way, that disappeared pretty quickly. Did it not, if I recall correctly? Yeah,
3: yeah, uh, yeah. It did. But, it, but, you know, if you shut down for uh, for three hours to teach the fine art of making better espresso, I think maybe it's not <sighs> a bad idea to shut down and have a con- – you know, have a, have Do you think a dis- it's
2: real? Do you think it's cause th- because they're deeply concerned uh, no. about – The mistreatment of African-Americans in their store in Philadelphia and maybe elsewhere?
3: But but even if it's not real, it's not a terrible idea. We were always talking about having a discussion about race. It
2: is a terrible idea if the goal, and I don't know that this is the case, if the goal is to do nothing except move public opinion at a really damaging, potentially damaging moment for Starbucks, I think it is. Because then what they're trying, it's like, if you'll excuse the expression, fake news. I mean, it's, if I'm right, I have no idea if I'm right, but let's, again, I heard the woman who's conducting the training from a very well-respected organization, Mm -hmm. the NAACP Legal Defense Fund this morning, and maybe it's early, when is the thing, April 29th or something, I forget what the date is, but she couldn't answer the NPR anchor's question about what what are they going to do during, what are you going to teach, what are you going to train, what are you going to do, which made me a little nervous that they hired FAST, that being Starbucks. Hired a very credible person from a very credible organization because they wanted to make sure the word got out very quickly before the boycott picked up steam. I have, I have no idea. Let's well, go. It's
3: like when Marty Walsh had those uh, "Let's Talk About Race" get-togethers. I, I don't know if he's still having those. We should ask him that next time he comes yeah. on. But um, and I did not go to the first one that I, the one I knew about at least. But they were, from what I read about them, when I heard about them, it was pretty productive to have pe- people together uh, in a room. African-Americans, white people, Latino people talking about race. We're always saying we should do that. So maybe it is just a PR stunt.
2: Well, the devil's in the content. Let's see what they're teaching and who's doing the teaching and what, what happens there. Allie, you're in Duxbury. You're on Boston Public Radio. Thank you much for calling in. Hi.
1: Hi. Um, just a really quick comment. Um, sure. Marjorie, I know that the theme is you're asking if things are going to change. And I think that there's one silver lining that came out of this that makes me really proud of the white person. There was a white, I don't know if it was a man or a woman, standing up and defending the two black people that were being arrested. And they were using their white privilege for good.
2: Wasn't that the guy they were supposed to meet with, if I well, remember there was correctly? The,
1: the person in video He or... was white.
2: Yeah, I he know. Yeah, I saw that too. he was too. using
1: his privilege for good. Um, which, you know, as a white woman myself, you know, I don't know if I would have been able to be that brave to do it. I would like to hope I would, but it was the one thing that I saw that makes me happy.
2: Yeah, but do you appreciate, and this is not a reflection on you, how pathetic it is that that's the best we can take out of it, that a person who happens to be white had the decency and courage oh God, to yes, actually absolutely. tell the truth. I mean, how pathetic is that? But, Al, oh, you're so right. I mean,
10: I'm not saying it's not No, pathetic. I know. I mean, I know no, I'm, not,
2: I'm, not, I'm surely not quarreling with you. Thanks for the call. I, I, we well, appreciate. there was
3: that voice over and over during the yeah. video saying, what are you doing? What, they're not doing anything. Why are you doing this to the cops? Yeah. So that person was accosting the police officers as well which often makes people uh, nervous. And by the
2: way, uh, the, the, the first caller, I think, this whole discussion made a very good point. What? Is there should be questions leveled at the Philadelphia police as well. I mean, their goal is to defuse situations. And some might argue, well, if the two guys weren't willing to leave, then they couldn't defuse it. I, I find it hard to believe that sitting in a, uh, a Starbucks without dr- ordering a drink is the basis for being cuffed and let out uh, of the restaurant, regardless of your unwillingness
3: Well, remember, to we talked about this with uh, uh, Police Commissioner Bill Evans a few weeks ago, about the black guy that's walking down the street. He said on his way to get his hair cut, and the cops were looking out yeah. the window at him. And there was that confrontation where the white cop gets out and starts saying, where are you going, what are you doing? Mm. And this kid is saying, why are you asking me? You know, why are you asking me? And, and, and that just doesn't happen if you... Are a white person walking down the street. You haven't explained your, go- your whereabouts. And I'm sure this kid was tired of this kind of thing happening to him. You know, it, it just... I couldn't agree more. It, it's, and why should, you have to, why should you have to explain I'm here for a business meeting if they're not asking everybody else?
2: Do you remember Deval Patrick telling us the story years ago? Yes. About being in Milton and I think walking to a professor's house. Am I right, right about this? I don't remember. He's walking somewhere. I think somewhere. he was walking he was to at a Milton professor's Academy. house in Milton Academy as a kid. Uh, Not many black kids in Milton at that time, I don't know if there are now, and he was stopped by the cops. So, I mean, there, there are multitudes of these uh, stories. We're going to continue this discussion with Andrew Cabral in the uh, 12 o'clock hour. And thank you much for your calls.
3: Yeah, but coming up, uh, the elephants not in the room. Congressional members of the GOP continue to resign. What could this mean for the midterms? That and more is next on our political roundtable. Jennifer Nassour and Steve Kerrigan are with us. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio, live from the Boston Public Library you. <laughs>
2: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy, Marjorie Egan. Joining us take on political headlines, national, international, and local of the day are Steve Kerrigan and Jennifer Nassour. Jennifer is the former chair of the Mass GOP, founder of Conservative Women for a Better Future, and Counselor to Ruben and Rudman, attorneys of law. Hi there, Jennifer. Hello. Steve Kerrigan is president and co-founder of the Massachusetts Military Heroes Fund and former CEO of the Democratic National Convention. Hi, Steve.
3: Hi, Jim. How are nice you? Nice to see
2: you both. Thank you. Good.
3: Well, let's start with something. I- I'm surprised how sad this made me feel when I heard that last night that I've never met her. I just, I've just seen her. She came to Wellesley College, a big protest years ago, because she was just a wife and mother and not a, a career woman. Barbara Bush, when she died last night, um, how would you feel? Oh, it was so sad. Actually, the first election I ever
11: got to vote in was George Bush. His election, and so um, you know, like I feel like I grew up with them. I feel like she was my like my grandmother. I mean, she kind of looked like my grandmother, and you just you got that feeling where she was warm, she was beautiful, she was classy. Like she, to me, embodied the perfect first lady.
3: Well, you know what else I loved about her? Um, um, She did not. Do or follow her husband's politics. She was pro-choice. Oh, yeah. Yes. Uh, during the AIDS epidemic, yeah. when people, there's great stories about her cuddling the AIDS infant to yeah, show I'm not yeah. going to get AIDS, going to Ryan White's funeral. Remember, he was a young man. I that, forgot about yeah. that. Yeah. that, yeah, actually. that yeah, yeah. died from of AIDS from the blood uh, yeah. from the blood transfusion. And she also, I remember, when the Salvation Army was criticized for having their red kettles outside malls, she went and. Put money in the salvation. She said, so a lot of those things I, I thought were pretty neat that she did. Yeah, she was um, not only, I mean, First Ladies
12: leave their different imp- on people, and she certainly left hers in the work that she did as first lady, but really her work as a woman and as a role model across her lifetime I think is really going to be her biggest legacy and you know I loved her line at the end of her Wellesley speech when she said that you know I hope I 'm an example for you know someone in this crowd could end up being the spouse of a uh, of a uh, president of the United States, and I wish him well she always That's understood true. that there was something greater out there so she, and yeah. it,
11: another one that I liked was and it it's such a, you know, it's so simple, but it's so true. It's, you have two choices in life. You mm-hmm. can pick the things you like to do and the things you dislike. Yeah. And I chose to do the things I like to do. And it's so, it's so simple, but it's so true. I mean, many yeah. people walk around miserable, and it's such a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah.
2: Well, speaking of miserable, let me say something for a <laughs> second. I hate to be cynical. Please tell me I'm wrong. I am a great, I, I never met her either, and I have great respect for her and, and by the way, her sense of humor was also just well you touched, it was just brilliant throughout her whole life was just brilliant about herself about her family whatever she was great I worry that one of the reasons she's gotten so much attention since she died is less because of who she was and what she did and more because the media wanted to compare her and her family to the Trump family and to Donald Trump I mean they never said it. Right, but you know there was this thing that I, I'm watching last night. I'm reading last night online, and I felt like I was reading and watching between the lines, where they were all saying maybe unfairly on my part, they're not the Trumps. Is well, that I
12: mean, yeah? No, well, look, I don't. I don't think you're entirely wrong. Um, thank you for I think that. You're, you're welcome. It's you get that day, half obviously. point. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I, I think. And I thought about this last night, too. I thought, God, you know, I looked back at some of the things to make sure that my mm. feelings about her were not being reflective <laughs> of their comparison to the Trumps. Uh, and, you know, I, it's it's going to be natural, and particularly in a 24-hour news cycle, that our minds sort of work that way in constant comparison to what's going on. Uh, but I remember back in those days, and I, my parents have a trailer up in New York, Maine, and and we used to literally, my, my father most of all, would bump into them up in Kennebunk at stores and things like that. Oh, wow. They, they really were... And, and he still is a good and honest and decent human being. And they really embody, regardless of party, um, what you hope our leaders will be like.
2: Well, also, fellow Mainers from that part of the world speak glowingly oh God, of bumping into yeah. them in the yeah. general yeah. store. So you think I'm cynical and nuts. Okay, I, let's I, think, it I think okay. you're cynical, Jen. You. You <laughs> you know,
3: one last thing. I've said this before, but I'll say it again because she just died. Um, they lost their little girl, their yeah. three-year-old, Probably. their oldest daughter of leukemia at three years old. And it was well into the Bush presidency before I even knew about that. And you think about how today you would be exploiting that death from the moment you announced your candidacy. You know, it says a different time in our politics and a different attitude about that kind of thing. I mean, you guys may have known it sooner than I did. I didn't know it.
11: No, I didn't know it either. And, you know, I I think that's a testament, again, to to who they are, who who she was um, as a person. They didn't need to do that. You know, I mean, he, they they had their family and they had their life and they had their um, morals and values and they didn't need to exploit that. And I think that that's really something that's lost out of politics
2: yeah. and
12: candidates today. Yeah, it's a testament of how confident they were in who they were as a family and who mm-hmm. they were as a married couple that they didn't feel they needed to... Okay,
2: let's go from the things. high road to the low road. <laughs> Enough of this, by the way. This is so unlike us. It's really Speaking of the road, thank feverish. you guys for... <laughs> just thank
12: mm-hmm. Thank you guys for waiting at the finish line for me. I just finished... Did you run? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I did run. Yeah. I ran
2: seven years ago. I ran seven years ago. I did. Thank you? No, yeah. Yeah, I got
12: funny. here just before the DPW truck.
2: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, are you worried as a GOP type about these midterms more than you were a week ago. Let me tell you, I mean, one, the Ryan departure seems to me to be this clarion call thing. We are really in trouble, and i got to get out of here as fast as I can. But then I read a really interesting piece last night about how the issue that was supposed to allow the Republicans to survive, if they survive as a majority, was the tax cut. We know that the vast majority of people, we talked about this last week in polls, say that I haven't seen anything in their checks, but they then made the point, which is obvious, which I should have thought of. It, the point of the piece was not only does the public not care about the tax cuts, Donald Trump doesn't care about the tax cuts. He rips up the speech the other day that he was supposed to give, the sole purpose of which was to tout the tax cuts. Are you worried?
11: Okay, so I'm a Republican, and as my, as my accountant said, hey, it's your party, so... <laughs> <laughs>
2: If that does disappear as an issue, what do they run on come the midterms?
11: So I think that the party really has to do some, some self-evaluation at this point and do it very quickly. Um, I mean, look, the president's numbers are still up. They ticked up again, right, to where he was when he was first mm-hmm. inaugurated. So, how bad could it be, really? I mean, yes, we have a whole bunch of retirements, but in a lot of those districts, they have other Republicans and good Republicans running. So, you know, I think that the economy really has to take a hit in order for anything to change. I think Republicans like me, who still hold on to the principles and the morals and the values of the party are pissed off and we have been and we're going to continue to be. But we're different than the Trump voters. We're different than the people that want to see the actual change that's been happening happen. So even though I want tax cuts and I want infrastructure and everything seems to be moving very slowly um, and not happening at all, there are other Republicans that are just happy that Trump is in there. He's saying what he's saying and they're going to keep electing Republicans that Trump Rubber stamps. You're
12: nodding in so, agreement. Well, so I'm in, in part. I, I just remember 2010. I was working at the DNC, and I traveled the country with President Obama as we tried to remind people that a vote for the president was a vote for, or a vote for Democrats was a vote mm. for the president. And it, he got shellacked in his own Sixty-three seats was that what it, it, it was, was? Something. Like yeah. was something, We don't need to bring that up. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, but I think this president in particular has like a crop top for for <laughs> coattails. Like I don't think like There's anything. And the more Good that line. he allows the the Dem- the Republican Party rather to get off message and focus on his crazy. I mean, I agree with Jennifer in principle that, that there are a lot of Republicans out there who are going to consistently reelect uh, their good, you know, valued uh, members. But if they're looking in those super Trump districts for super Trump voters to get out and vote, they're not going to do it.
2: Talking to Steve Kerrigan and Jennifer Nasor.
3: So let's talk about the ambassador to the U.N., Nikki Haley. This Her, is the line
2: of the month. Yeah. Can we agree? I heard Joe oh.
3: Scarborough say that, uh, you know, maybe she could be a Republican running against uh, Trump in the primary, or maybe she could be on the short list for, for revenge for the president pretty soon. One of the other, people may recall, on Sunday she talked about how the United States was preparing new sanctions against uh, Russia. But then the White House said, oh, no, no, that wasn't really happening. And then uh, Kovlo, he's the new, uh, what is his new title? The economic Economizer. advisor, whatever he said. Uh, that he said that maybe she was confused, to which Nikki Haley said, with all due respect, I don't get confused. <laughs> <laughs> she told this to Fox News. So, um, you know, she's uh, uh, good looking. She's tough. She's smart. She's former the, governor. Former, former governor. governor. She's the daughter of I think she's the daughter of two immigrants. I'm yeah, not she guess. is. Yeah. OK, so what do you think, Jennifer Nasour?
11: Uh, I think that Trump better tread lightly over here on the Nikki Haley territory. I mean, she is beloved. There's, I, there's no one who doesn't like her and no one who doesn't think that she's a rock star. Um, I mean, I've been lucky enough to actually meet her. And not only is she cool and beautiful and smart, but she is like... I went up and introduced myself. She gave me the biggest hug and said, "I'm so happy to meet you. We need more of us, and how are we going to do that? Like, just how close do you live
12: to New Hampshire? Yeah,
11: (laughs) (laughs) but I mean, no. This this was like five years ago, and just I thought that she was really someone that is." Friendly, kind, warm, you know, and, and if she's going to go up against Trump as a, as a candidate one day and he's going to piss her off and she's going to do that, my money is on her because she will be able to pull people from both sides to vote for her because she's that kind of person. You
2: want know, to understand about this whole thing Marjorie said to me this morning, why is Larry Kudlow commenting on right. Russian sanctions? That's number one. But number two, what kind of person does that? I mean, is that, was the calculation... Let me see. What is Donald Trump going to be happiest? I mean, a lot of us want to do what our bosses will like. Why did he have to demean uh, Nikki Haley, who is as respected as she is, particularly in those circles? But I think more broadly, as Jennifer said too, what I mean, w-
12: it was just, it was bumbled at best. I mean, look, it's definitely Larry Kudlow trying to go out there and assert himself as the new guy on the block. Um, he is definitely much more of a Trump person than she is because he's a white guy. Mm. Uh, of a certain age, um, you know. He, so then bit, I must
2: be too. I guess based <laughs> <less> on <than> those <laughs> criteria. Depending on the day, you never know.
12: It's Donald Trump, um, but he's mishandled her. I thought it was actually a, uh, a brilliant move that she asked for this post at, at the UN. Why? Because, uh, because it it, ele- it takes uh, a governor from a relatively not huge state or in a well known state. Uh, and puts her on the world stage, gives no, her foreign true. policy experience. Which she didn't have. That's which she didn't point. have. And I thought, frankly, the best way to keep her in a box and not get her to primary him is when the Secretary of State's job was open, was to move her into that and sort of lock her in until at least the end of the term. Now he's not only not done that, he's replaced the Secretary of State by another white guy, uh, and he is now poking her in, and not giving her an opportunity to really spread her wings. And embarrass you, her anyway, so the when world you state. say
2: poking her, do you think Kudlow did that no. with, with, with Trump's... Blessing. Oh, definitely. Yeah. You do. Oh, I, I, I definitely believe some.
12: He said, "Look, we haven't uh, agreed on the sanctions." Which, by the way, I guarantee you, she left the meeting at the White House believing the sanctions oh, are happening. I don't on think anybody doubts it. And so. right. the wind blew a different direction, and the president changed his mind, and no one bothered to tell anybody in New York.
3: She still demeaned her, even in his apology. He apologized. In apology. Yes, he said he was. He apologized, and he said he was wrong to say she was confused. But here's his quote. She was basically following what she thought was policy. The policy was changed, and she wasn't told about it, so she was in a box. In Ah. other words, she's out of the loop.
11: (laughs) Ah, (laughs) this makes me nuts. This really, I mean, he he embodies what we are trying to move away from as a nation, in politics, with candidates, with anyone being involved. I mean, he is a retired guy. Go off, be quiet, and move out of here. She's a 40-something-year-old mother kid of immigrants, has worked her tail off, has become governor. She deserves the utmost respect for what she does. And he clearly treats her as the little girl in the office.
2: You know, isn't the the goal in life that when you're in a situation like that, to come up with the simplest, shortest, like slang kind of line. And I'm sorry to repeat it, but her (laughs) line, with all due respect, I don't get, get confused. confused. I love it. It's making one of the best lines yeah. of 2018. It is so beautiful. Jeez. Talking to Jennifer Nassar and uh, Steve Kerrigan.
3: Okay. Uh, we have talked a lot about, about the, Here she goes. the state oh, police. I, I am obsessed with pensions as we know. No. And I was very obsessed with the fact that the state police at uh, F Trooper, Troop F, you're Troop to call F, him, Troop Marjorie, F. Yes. I like to call them F Troop, <laughs> out at Great Logan TV Airport. Uh, we're, we're getting very high salaries, $200,000, 300000 allegedly cooking up a lot of overtime. Now I find out that Massport has just released, uh, quietly, as state officials point out, uh, um, figures revealing that more than $3.4 million has gone to the state police in additional payouts over four years. Most appears tied to a single perk. F Troop members get $40 per day Super. for driving their own cars to work. Then I read further in the story and found out they get $62 a month in a clothing allowance if they need... To appear as civilians, I think it's for more than ten days. Well, like in a
2: court or something. Well, I don't know. I
3: don't know. I mean, this is just, I'm, you know, and you juxtapose this with these terrible stories about school systems like Brockton, that they can't, you know, they can't afford a decent pair of, uh, of books to put together for these kids. What's going on here? I. I
11: gigantic abuse. I mean, look, I would love a clothing allowance. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you yeah. guys would, right? Exactly. I mean, that's why I'm a sustaining donor. Or, or how account. about the $200,000 salary? That would be nice too. I mean, you know, for all the education that is combined, <laughs> just sitting Charlie there, doing here, Charlie Baker not so bad.
2: Charlie Baker came out with a uh, uh, Colonel Gilpin. Who yes. Gilpin. Yes. Yes. Uh, I hope I got that right on my apologies. Uh, who's the head of the state police. And uh, put some rules out front. We learned the next day some of them need some union approval. I don't know if they've had the governor's with us tomorrow, by the way, and obviously we'll discuss this with him. His baker, as manager in chief, which obviously is his calling card. Has he done enough there, Jennifer? I,
11: I think he's trying. I think when they came out, what is it, two weeks ago now?
2: Roughly, I think. Yeah.
11: And you know, she took the blame for some of the things that have happened yeah, over she there, did, actually. which was impressive. And you know, I mean, I think the governor did. Did the job he was supposed to do, which was go back review what had happened over there. He disbanded that the troop on the on the, the um, turnpike on the pike. oh, the, oh the, uh, was it the turnpike? Yeah. Yeah.
2: It was yeah. A turnpike. Yeah. yeah, yeah, turnpike. we discovered
3: how... that, the, that a troop B had also blocked off this uh, lane, this bus lane in the in the Ted Williams Tunnel for security reasons, which is a terrible problem for commu- the traffic situation. And I didn't understand what the security reasons were either. I was it so that the state police could go through there when they're catching. Criminals? Is that the idea? <laughs> All
12: the criminals you should ask them. Is <laughs> right.
2: Baker doing enough, no. uh, Steve Curry? What, no, it, what, what should he be doing uh, that he is not? I think
12: what I should say is as manager-in-chief, which is exactly what he ran on, uh, it would have been nice... I if, don't mean that
2: disparagingly, no, by the way. I, I, I do, mean, that is but, his calling uh, card. Well, that right. is... What,
12: I, I do mean it disparagingly, because okay. I don't think in the last three years uh, he has lived up to that moniker. Uh, what should
2: he have done here that he hasn't done?
12: When you take over as governor of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, you hire a cabinet, you, you, you reappoint or appoint a colonel of the state police... It, there needs to be a top-down review of all of it to make sure. if, if well, the she's globe, new, by the way. I, I understand that. He basically if, forced but out he's the not. two.
2: No, but the two people before who right. were involved in that disgusting situation where they changed the arrest record of the right. daughter of that judge. But he
12: didn't force them out because of overtime stuff. He didn't correct. force them out because of all this other stuff. And he ha- he is not new. Mm-hmm. And his cabinet is not new. And what would have been nice would be a, a full review of, uh, don't smirk at me, Jennifer. Uh, <laughs> Please, to been a full you, review. please, you're <laughs> Keep smirking. Uh, please don't smirking. Um, it would have been a full review of the administration to make sure, look, particularly after eight years of us horrible Democrats running the Commonwealth, one would have thought that Republicans who manage things so well would have done a full review of oh, everything. Oh, sorry. Jennifer raised her hand.
2: <laughs> oh, boy. Jennifer Nassour, oh, yeah. yes, you were recognized. Pet. Yes, go ahead. <laughs>
11: <laughs> um, though I appreciate uh, Steve's argument. Oh. Um, <laughs> oh, wow.
12: I feel a whopper <laughs> it's, coming. It's
11: flawed <laughs> because we have... In Massachusetts, we have all these other fine constitutional officers, like an auditor. Of the Commonwealth, so he's allowed and to run a month because we no, have an No, 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 no. But maybe the job of the auditor is to potentially audit all of the various agencies throughout the Commonwealth when we see budgets are high and there are salaries, and get everyone in that office. Because I'm not really sure what Suzanne Bump and the auditor's office is doing at well, the. Well, let me give you, you another example. And I where think they the governor, know- when he found Wait. out about the the pensions and the overtime, got on it.
2: Well, wait a second. But let's pick another example where uh, uh, the governor is in charge where he doesn't need an audit. This Keolis disaster oh. That's, oh. that Estes wrote about in The Globe. Go ahead. Okay.
3: I'm, I just want to read the lead of this story. This is one of the great leads <laughs> It is all a time. great lead. Listen, this is about the commuter rail. Think about the, all these people who are on those commuter rails. Dean Walker's license has been suspended 39 times for everything from driving to endanger to refusing a breathalyzer test. He's been caught speeding 16 times, and convicted of drunken driving twice. To fellow motorists, he's a hazard. To the Registry of Motor Vehicles, he's a chronic offender. But to Keolis, the MBTA's computer rail operator, Walker is something else entirely. He's an engineer, and he is entrusted with operating six-car trains at speeds averaging 60 miles per hour carrying hundreds of commuters to and from the city.
12: I hope he's not on the Fitchburg line, because that's the one I took. <laughs> and By the way,
2: Jennifer, the only thing that I know we've done uh, vis-a-vis Keolis, despite their, in my opinion, abysmal performance since they took over commuter rail, is when they were running low on money. We, despite their performance, we gave them $60 million or 60 some million dollars a year ago. Is the administration doing what they need to do there?
11: Um, can we get rid of the unions, and then we can oh, talk about what the that's, governor's that's doing? That's
2: problem is.
4: No, that was the it problem, is, is the because unions.
11: the union's involvement in this, and they have all their reasons as to why we can't get rid of people, and the why they need aren't to the stay reason on why there. the
12: trains run late or why that gentleman is necessary. Yes, yes, no. it's no, why did, he's still not, not in one there. union member is going to stand up for someone with. But those they did types have that guy. Well, actually,
2: that part, I mean, with all due respect, yes. that part is not true. They what? are representing. I mean, that's part yes, of what Andrea.
12: But they're not going to necessarily stand up if he is found, you know, to be incompetent on the job. They're going to step up and do that. But that has nothing to do with Keolis' performance or the fact that they gave him a $60 million bonus and alleviated $900,000 worth of fines. But the
11: whole article, the but whole piece excuse. that Andrea wrote was all about how they have infractions and in their driving records and everything else. And, you know, basically, as far as the union's concerned, is that it's fine if they have outside driving infractions as long as it's not when they're on the train. Okay. I think that that should actually go hand Listen in
3: hand. Listen to this. This is from David Gunn, former Amtrak guy who ran transit agencies in New York, Washington, Philadelphia, and Toronto. Of all the places he worked, he said, the T was the most challenging in terms of controlling the workforce. Not that they were all bad people, but the structure and the union and political meddling and management made the T the absolute worst. I mean, there is a cultural problem here of, I think, our politicians being afraid of the MBTA union and the state police union and a lot of uh, powerful unions in general. Mm-hmm. Silence. Is there a question? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what do you think, Steve?
4: <laughs> Look,
12: I come from a union household. I am proud, a, a product of a, of a utility worker and a, and a teacher's union member. Um, I, I will stand with unions uh, every day of the week. The problem on the T isn't necessarily just a workforce problem. It's an investment problem, and I agree with what Jim has said a thousand times. What did I say? I believe that Charlie Baker is going to hold his nose and maybe vote no on the millionaire's tax, but he is hoping against hope that it passes so we have money to invest in these things. That was that a great point I made. It is a great Brilliant point (laughs) that you made, yes. Um, I make it now all the time without crediting you, Uh, now that I've said it on the air. Uh, But I I really think this comes down to fundamentally we need to invest in our infrastructure. We need to invest in getting people in and out and around Massachusetts. Until we do that, our economy is not going to continue to soar.
3: Okay, it's hard to invest when you're paying everybody two hundred and fifty grand. Yeah, seriously. Not everybody. Not, seriously.
12: everybody. Yeah, not everybody. Jennifer
3: Nassau is a former chair of the Massachusetts GOP, founder of Conservatives Women for a Better Future, and counsel to Rubin and Rudman, attorneys at law. Steve Kerrigan is president and co-founder of the Massachusetts Military Heroes Fund and former CEO
2: of the DNC. Marjorie. I got 40 bucks per diem for coming to work today.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I tell
12: you. We're going to leave money behind for you.
3: Thank you very much, Jennifer and Steve, for coming in. Coming up, Juliet Kime is here, which means it's mother time. She joins us for that. It's going to be Cohen time as well on 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio, broadcasting from the Boston Public Library.
2: At noon on BPR Live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. While Trump is getting cold feet about talking to Robert Mueller, it looks like talks between Trump and Kim Jong-un are warming up. The Washington Post is reporting that CIA Director Mike Pompeo went to North Korea last month to lay the groundwork for a meeting between the two leaders. National security expert Julia Kayem joins us for that and more. From there, we talk to Timothy Snyder about his new book, The Road to Unfreedom which looks at Putin's favorite Russian political philosopher and the template he set for destabilizing democracies.
3: A video of Cambridge police punching a black, naked Harvard student is fueling the debate about race, policing, and the use of force with echoes of the Henry Louis Gates arrest. Andrew Cabral joins us for this and more on this week's edition of Law & Order. Then WGBH's executive arts editor, Jared Bowen, gives us the latest rundown of arts and culture happenings in and around town. That's next on Boston Public Radio.
2: From a transmitter atop Great Blue Hill, this is WGBH. Live, local talk, Boston Public Radio.
3: Marjorie Egan, you're listening to Boston Public Radio, eighty-nine-seven WGBH. We are broadcasting live from the Boston Public Library. Lock well, in, Jim,
2: how are you, Marjorie? Good. Well, nice to see you again. Well, I just actually just saw you a couple right, minutes ago. I've been ago, here for a while. I know I meant, but nice to see you <laughs> is what I actually meant. <laughs> Oh, uh, Juliet! Let me just, uh, just on my me. own. Thank <laughs> you. In any case, <laughs> let's, get let's just get right. Let's just do this. <laughs> Juliet Kayyem joins us. She's a national security expert. She's a professor at Harvard's Kennedy School and CEO of Zemcar. Hi, Juliet.
13: Hello. Good to see you <laughs> for the see first you. time That's today. That's great. Good. Uh, Thank you.
3: So uh, l- l- let's start out with um, the president sending um, CIA Director Mom- uh, Mike Pompeo to North Korea. Yeah. Um a lot of people concerned about Mike Pompeo being a hawk and so forth, but on the other hand, it's talking to yeah. North Korea. So what is the... What is the so if I just, you know, just took a snapshot of that moment
13: that in, in, in attempts to use diplomatic means to, to get the tension out of the Korean Peninsula... The um, a senior member of the Trump team went there to meet with the leader of North Korea. I would think fantastic, Um, uh, and I do. I think that the you know this is the beginning of the kind of dialogue. We Madeline Albright went many years ago to meet the father. Um, You know, there's oddities to it. Um, Pompeo, as you said, is not just a hawk, but he has mocked previous presidents for trying to make overtures to various countries, whether it's Iran, Cuba, or North Korea. Uh, he was not the Secretary of State at the time. He was still the CIA well, director. he still isn't the Secretary he's, he's, he's he's still, is. he's still Yes, he's still, been nominated yeah. as Secretary of and State. And there's the politics the C- of it that his nomination is struggling. And so the fact that this seemed like a very well-calculated leak, which, which Trump then confirmed this morning, you know, is, is, is you know, why was this done and and Uh, what were the political motives here. But I think, you know, finally on the substance of it, you know, Kim has gotten what he wants, right, in the sense that he has now put the United States in equal footing with North Korea and the North Korean leader. That may be fine if we have a strategy on the other end. I find it hard to believe that he's going, that Kim is going to denuclearize. Um, And so... If that's not the case, then what's the goal here except for elevating Kim to the – I'm not saying Trump, the president of the United States level? Um, we also still have Americans who are being held in North Korea. And why that's not a quid pro quo for meeting, I don't understand. I mean, this is the easiest thing for Kim to do. It's not like he has to go through a judicial process. But I, I would make any meeting at that senior level conditional on getting our three Americans out.
2: But we don't know that he's not doing that. And we since he has a flair is- for the dramatic – it is plausible it is. that he return, the president himself returns home from wherever they are with these people. It is possible. People. But, you know, I, I hate to grasp at straws, but there's a lot of gr- grasping we do these days. One must assume, despite uh, Pompeo's hawkish past, that he was careful enough not to do or say something meeting with Kim Jong-un that would knock the whole thing off course before it even happened, which suggests unless it was a fraudulent kind of encounter... That there is a new and different, or a newish and different ish Pompeo as he eases into his new role. I mean, so I guess the fact that there's even any preparatory work with somebody at a relatively high level is a good thing. Positive thing because a lot of us were worried. Essentially, the meeting is going to happen with virtually nothing except low-level contact. Right, and it will be
13: interesting to see sort of what the takeaways were in terms of you know what what North Korea wants, what how far will it go in terms of denuclearization, if at all. Mm -hmm. Um, Where is South Korea and all this? Um, Where is Japan? You know, he's he's with the Donald Trump is with the leader of uh, Japan right now, Um, and uh, two guys
2: in trouble at home, by the way, Abe. In Japan right. and obviously trump right. here yeah. yeah, so
13: and um and uh you know, sort of you know Trump tweets out about the TPP and the you know and doesn't seem to know that South Korea is not in it, and you know just everything does seem more complicated than it needs to be if he would just you know read the briefing materials, so I think, as I said, as a snapshot i, I I'm, I'm you know I think this is a very good thing. I just don't know what the atmospherics sure. are and what the takeaways are, but as you said, you know the the three Americans seems to me to be. And hopefully, is the quid pro quo for the
3: meeting?
2: We're talking to Julia Kayam.
3: So um, apparently, the Justice Department uh, Mueller has believes that um, uh, Michael Cohen, the <laughs> president's personal lawyer, uh, made a secret trip to Prague. Yeah. Uh, in the summer before the election, uh, not going straight there, but entering uh, Czechoslovakia through Germany. Um, I, you know, I don't know if that was to try to disguise yeah. anything or not. But why? Why is that significant? So it's if true. true, I want to say, and he denies
13: it, and it's a single it's a single sourced, um, it's a single source news article. It got a lot of play, and then I I noticed sort of people started to sort of a little bit walk away from it until there can be additional sourcing. And if you read it carefully, it really was more here's how he could have done it without a passport stamp, assuming that he only has one passport. So the 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 Prague meeting, um, you know, is related to. Uh, The Russia collusion issue um, in terms of who Michael Cohen may have been meeting with um, in terms of uh, senior members of the Putin mafia or whatever you want to call it. And so the question was, was there a Trump representative in Prague at the moment that something we know happened in terms of Prague. And they've never been able to place a, a member of the Trump team there. And the, the question of Michael Cohen has been around, I mean, in terms of But is of Prague, this in the
2: dossier? Is, is, is this, yeah. Is, so I guess part of it, if true, is that it confirms a fairly important part of Peace. the dossier. right. Which right, which would right. give more credibility? Which, to the in whole. all
13: honesty, huge parts of the dossier have already been yeah. confirmed. I mean, the meetings, the Trump Tower—not you know, the Trump Tower meetings, but all—all the, all the meetings that were denied originally have are now we know to be real. And so the Trump campaign went from there were no meetings mm-hmm. to there were no meetings discussing you know usurping American democracy. They're like that's the standard we're at right now. And um, and so this is just another data point in terms of validating the dossier. You know, everyone focuses on. On Those two paragraphs about the you know the tapes and what happened in the in the room with the with the prostitutes and stuff it that is that is unbelievably irrelevant, whether proved or not, because so much else of the dossier has been proved and even if it 's not true about the hookers and prostitutes and all the things we have to talk about now in in this presidency, um, it still gets to whether enough pieces of it are true that the president is compromised. In other words, even if that exact gesture that the hooker made, you know, on the bed, I don't even know what to call it. It's not a gesture, whatever it is. We can just skip by Yes, exactly. Gesture's fine. Um, You know, uh, what were their interactions with hookers and prostitutes that that make uh, Trump compromised? And nothing, you know, we had another week of Trump— uh, acting like he was compromised with the sanctions related to the, you know, the the Nikki Haley brouhaha.
3: So let's move on to another story that I, I must say I get I, I must admit I got an awful lot of kick what? out of. Well, the, the president trying to get more lawyers. Oh work, my God! To work for him. Uh, apparently his his new lawyer has been um, uh, there was this, she was just appointed a couple of days ago because she was in court.
2: That's the Cohen case.
3: Yeah, so that's this, the Cohen is, case. Is, we're back to the Cohen case now. Uh, that may the, be easier. Yeah, this former federal prosecutor, Joanna Hendon, I guess has got a, quite a career. She said that she was, uh, she was only engaged on 11, April 11th, so when she was recently in court, she said, you've got to give me some time to catch up. Uh, they go out and interview lawyers about why um, so many people have turned down working for the president, and some of the people that have turned him down are... People like Ted Olson, yeah. who was a big um, uh, solicitor general for George W. Bush, and they list a lot of it. Robert Bennett, big famous lawyer in, in Washington. They list a bunch of lawyers that turn him down. And then they quote this guy, uh, Paul Rosenwig, yeah, former, former se- yeah. senior counsel to Whitewater, counsel Ken Starr, who says about working for the president, Would you? Everyone who works for Trump has a big T burned on their forehead for the rest of their and life. And doesn't get paid. Yeah. The, doesn't well, you know. By the way, saying
2: he also does not have a lead lawyer, I believe, the in the Russian investigation. Yeah, he has right? a. He
13: has a. Does not have a lead criminal lawyer. So this is just interesting. I mean, you know, in terms of the legal. Uh, in terms of the legal community and the legal profession. I mean, first of all, they have to think of their other clients. So in other words, Trump may be the big fish, but you're going to have an exodus of other clients uh, who don't want you to do this. This is what Jamie Gorelick experienced in, uh, in being the early lawyer for uh, Ivanka and Jared Trump, Jamie Gorelick, a well-known Democratic lawyer, uh, the, oh, firms, right. the firms the firms don't right. like that. it. I mean, in the sense that, that they have other clients who are paying probably a lot more, right, in terms of...
3: The second issue is just to take they a... They don't st- like it because they're uh, Democrats or they don't like it because of Cause, what? Because
13: I think in the same way that we're seeing with guns and and Fox News and sponsorship on Fox News, I think the market speaks and the market, at least if you're, if you're, a, if, you're a, if you're a law firm that um, embraces diversity, progressivism, not, not partisanism, but, you know, progressive on both the Democratic and Republican side. You have African-American Hispanic lawyers. You have gay lawyers. You have Jewish lawyers. I mean, representing what T- Trump represents at this stage, uh, the moral vacuum of the Trump administration, you wouldn't want to do it. I mean, it's just not a good image for you. And and you know, and sponsors feel that way too. You see, even though the Trump Uh, properties have made lots of money. They've only made lots of money by the circle of the Republican campaigns, you know, having events at Trump Towers or Trump Hotels. They're not making money from the bigger universe of businesses. And this is what you're seeing with, you know, guns and, and Fox News sponsorship and other stuff like that. I think the other thing is just to take a step back. And colleague Sheikh Mohammed, the mastermind of 9/11, has better lawyers than Donald Trump. And I'm sorry to raise that, oh, but oh, like he has really good lawyers.
4: He had an easier like, time finding he had him, easier too. Easier
13: time because there's like a bigger cause, you know, yeah. right to representation. People are against the death penalty. But well, I just well, want to remind primary, people that Khalid oh, Sheikh Mohammed. Why, is, why
3: doesn't he hire one of your colleagues over it to over it to Harvard? Alan, Alan Dershowitz, Dershowitz claims
13: Dershowitz that he is not. He doesn't want to work for him. He work for him. He, he's making more money probably just being on TV. I mean I there's also it, the issue of payment. I mean this is a, a family yeah, well known not second. Paying there's the There's also an
2: issue of being humiliated as a lawyer by a client who who is going to go tweet doesn't follow your advice and that reflects rightly or wrongly on the quality of the lawyering if you can't control your client but you know if you step back from this for a minute and you, you rationally go through the list of reasons why lawyers would not want to represent him you say to yourself, this is the most powerful person I mean. on the planet, you'd be the highest profile lawyer in the world, and there are no credible, high-profile, competent lawyers who are rushing to represent right. him. It's, it's otherworldly. It's
13: otherworldly because, well, I mean, as you know, quoting uh, Paul, uh, the person you just quoted, you know, would you, in a sense, not just your reputation, but... Would you have confidence at this stage representing Trump, especially in the Mueller issue? You know, the Stormy Daniels thing is different, but in the in the Mueller issue, would you have confidence that you would not be aiding and abetting a potential high crime and misdemeanor? Well, that's another point. And you know, you you know, people are well aware of how the history books will be written. Well some people are, Paul Ryan isn't, but some people are. <laughs> you know, how the history books, if there are history books, will be written um, about this time. And you don't want to be the the, the lawyer who, who isn't Laura bad.
2: Ingram a lawyer? Isn't yeah, she, why can't she, can can do she do represent she's mad him?
13: she's mad at him though isn't she
11: mad oh,
2: at him? I don't know I a lot him? of them I are think she, I forget
13: Colter, uh, I Alex forget Jones are mad, mad, mad at him and Coulter was
3: mad about the, bu- budget. the budget and it didn't do enough for the the for wall, the wall and immigration and all that kind of right, stuff. I right. didn't know that Laura Ingraham. I don't. Management. Maybe she's not. But I, I don't do know, know her ratings have gone up dramatically. Uh, at least at last, this was as of a couple of days ago. So I don't know what they were last night. But yeah. could be after the brouhaha over the boycott by right. advertisers right. of her show, when she went after the Parkland. Right. And it's, uh,
13: yeah. And then you know. And then Sean Hannity. The primetime on Fox is like a walking crisis management. You know, they're yeah, doing pretty well. Yeah, for themselves. I know. Hey, not as Juliet, well as MSNBC. Can also. we stay
2: on lawyering just for a second? Yeah, is the reports uh, again, I don't know how credible they are post this Cohen raid as the president calls a break in. Yeah. I'm sorry, not raid break in as he calls it, uh, uh, is that as a result of the anger that the president feels uh, oh, Ingram was upset about the serious strikes. That's a, and Alex oh, Jones right. went notes it's about that, Oh, right. It's the Syria strikes. Thank that's you for, for that, that our the, Literally,
13: the serious strikes happened since the last time I saw you, yeah. and it wasn't even on our list. Now, what isn't
2: was that amazing, she, what, is it amazing? It, what was
3: she upset about, that they weren't talking about? Intervention. Intervention. Yeah, so it's oh. like, we're America okay.
2: first. You worry about ourselves. Okay. In any case, uh, getting back to this, the, the reports are that Trump is so upset that he's now telling his lawyers, such as they are, uh, I'm not meeting with this guy anymore. Yeah. I wanted to meet with him. I was willing to do it under uh-huh. oath, theoretically assuming that is believable and you know you don't one doesn't know how true the report is what does Mueller then do? If it, Does he subpoena him in front of a grand jury? I don't jury? think, I, I, don't mean, think I, can't.
13: I think. that is the least favored option by Mueller. So what does he Mueller. do? I think he, written well, questions? Remember, uh, well, he'll see if he can even get written questions and then at least give the opportunity to the president to, to, to have a, a narrative uh-huh. that then can go into the record. Remember, Mueller is not here for indictments. He's here for a report. That is his mandate. The indictments yeah. are incidental to The report and the report is what happened in 2016. So he obviously wants to give the president an opportunity, but there's no reason that he can't write that report. And remember, even without having spoken, right? And Mueller's response, or someone's response, or someone reported that the Mueller team's response to you know the president, who I never thought was going to testify, because there's no way this guy can testify without lying. um, If if uh, uh, Mueller's response was okay, then the report on obstruction of justice we can get out earlier, meaning we don't need this guy mm. to basically say, you know, you know there, there, there's clear obstruction of justice. You know, as I've been saying... I think it's hard for us to conceptualize obstruction of justice happening in plain sight, but it just has. Like, I mean, we just see it every single day. You see it with Comey and uh, his recollection. You know,
2: can I just say one thing? Yeah. For those who were upset by Juliet saying a minute ago they could never let him testify because all he's going to do is lie. If you have not seen – I played this on Greater Boston okay. last week. If you have not seen Donald Trump in a civil deposition oh, yeah. in 2016 – Where the lawyer for the other side – I don't know if it's a Trump University case or whatever it is – said, did you – or I I don't know what it was – said, did you sign these documents? No, I've never seen them. Don signed them, meaning my son signed them. And then the lawyer says, well, isn't this your signature signature? on the – and he says, oh, yeah, I signed those – the point is, there's nothing. They
13: found in one deposition 32 blatant lies. (laughs) Like, in other words, 2 plus 2 equals 5 kind of lies. Like, not even the ones that are sort of, uh, you know, interpreted. But beyond
2: that, strategically, it seems to me, if I were Donald Trump's lawyer – that I would say absolutely don't go, because politically what you are able to say... If you participate, you're less able to say that Bob Mueller just listened to one side. If you don't participate, you say, I didn't participate because this was so biased to begin with. And obviously he reached these conclusions because he didn't want to hear my side of the story. I mean, it gives... It seems to me Trump is better positioned vis-a-vis his fellow Republicans in Congress. That's right. In the political space. If he space. doesn't – politically in the political only, yes. space. So,
13: I mean this is what's happening now and this is where you know, Comey fits in is um, there's the legal space – of which all of this stuff does not matter. I mean, even him test- even him uh, agreeing to speak is really more. I think at this stage, probably just atmospherics for for Mueller. I mean, I think mm-hmm. he has cases, um, so he has a narrative. And then there's the political space, which is what you know. What can we do to 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 you know you know make the make Mueller look like fake news or make it look like uh-huh. a witch hunt? That's the, that's the only space Trump cares about because honestly, he is completely you know if he tries to fight in the legal space because it seems I mean just the stuff that's come out so far you've got multiple plea uh, uh, plea deals you've got multiple indictments you've got uh, and this is separate but it might be related a raid of his personal lawyer's uh, offices no. not done easily y- he's losing big time in the legal front so he's got to put all of his energies in the right in and the if you participate fi- in
2: the process it's harder to right. trash the process right. that led to the report right it seems and this to is
13: me. and this is where you know this week of Comey comes in, you know, I, um, I said uh, on air, and I just, I think I, I sort of encapsulated how I feel that, you know, as a, you know, as a FBI director, Comey was flawed. As a self-reflector, in other words, what he did in 2016, the, you know, he, 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 ha- he doesn't go there. I think he's, uh, that storyline is still not sufficient. As a witness to obstruction of justice, he seems very credible, um, I mean, the, the, that storyline seems very credible. But as relevant to the legal side, he, he's, he's dated. He's been out for too long. Too much has happened. And, Speaking um, of
2: the legal side, did you see that uh, Donald Trump tweeted this morning that Russia investigation had nothing to nothing. do with the firing coma, even though he said to Lesser, Lester well, Holt, which know, we've right. all seen 10,000 times, that it was the Russia thing? He that,
13: can't... Stop himself! I mean, this is you the know, crazy. I mean, just, its the craziest thing. Like literally, every self-preservation aspect to a normal person would be: do not comment about exactly. the porn star. Do not comment <laughs> exactly. about Comey. Move on. You've got you know the serious but stuff. You've got various thinking? nominees. You've got North the, Korea. Do he, not comment. The, the,
3: the, the, his supporters will—he's
2: in the moment. Dispute He's what they the mo- see no,
3: with their own eyes on right. television. Yes. You know they'll, they'll they'll just think that that's you know a, a fake video or something <laughs> Yeah, you, no you no, no wonder, I mean, it's how do you he think he's going to persuade people?
13: Yeah, I mean his his strategy is if should, I nobody, can keep I, if I can keep them engaged and talk about the wall long enough and um, you know and and uh, and make sure the stock market doesn't go over the cliff and you know and do a few things then Sometimes then I, I wonder
3: if it's just that um, uh, so many people in his base just can't stand Democrats can't stand. Liberals can't stand. Sort of how
2: Democrats um, feel about Trump. Yeah. I mean, there's no, no, no there's yeah. and no that's middle what that was. That was why anymore.
13: someone like me, for four hours last night, I turned on the TV when I got home. I was I was on air about. Before she passed away, I was on air. I can't even remember now about something, and I come Barbara home Bush? and I go, "Oh, a night no, at home, Barbara Bush." I forgot what, and then Barbara Bush had died on, uh, by the time I got home, and I watched four hours of it and the stories and the and, and the and the and the love and the and everything, and and I I was like, "Why am I watching this for?" You know, basically till eleven thirty at night, and it was just. I think it was a little bit that, you know, there there was a moment when there were Democrats. Uh, uh, that were likable across the aisle. There were Republicans that That were likable across the aisle. And you were just sort of um, aware of it. And when she came up during his reelect, that was the Pat Buchanan moment. Mm. And she talked about, you know, not all families look like ours and gay marriage and, 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 you know, interracial couples. And um, it was, you know, you just sort of thought, you know, that's that's the Republican Party I grew up with, you know, and um, and it's just gone. Well, I, mean, I thought that was
2: refreshing, like, but as I said to the guests who were here before you, my cynical self says the reason your station, CNN, played that as big as it did yeah. was so that the viewer would compare them to Donald oh, Trump yeah. and Jeff Don Toobin, Jr. Jeff and Toobin said it out oh, I, loud. Did he say oh, that? he said did it he
13: out said? loud. No, what he didn't say that. He just said, you know, I know we're not supposed to be political right now, but I'm not having the warm and fuzzies right now. I'm having the... Here was a time when a first lady, first of all, loved her husband, uh, was engaged with an issue that made sense, and I just love I, I, the, the one thing I did tweet out. She, I don't, you know, I didn't follow her, or whatever, but did all these great stories. But my favorite was her last entry uh, into her college. I guess she didn't graduate. Maybe it was her high she school magazine. Nice. Yeah, yeah, her alumni, and she said. Uh, maybe it was a couple years ago. I am still old and still in love, and I oh. thought sh- we should all be so lucky.
2: Seventy-three years was that what it was? Seventy-three.
13: Well, did you read
3: yeah. where they would hold hands at night and discuss I'm, which one, which, who loved each other more?
13: Okay, that's like.
2: Oh, look at yeah. me! I'm going to call uh, my husband right now. <laughs> Good to see you, Juliette <laughs> Kayyem. Hi. Tell say hi for us.
3: I National will. Yes, e- I will say hi. Expert Juliette Kayyem joins us every week. She's a professor at the Kennedy School, a CNN contributor, at and CEO of Zemcar. Juliette, thank you very much. Bye. Coming up, what does an obscure early 20th century Russian philosopher have to do with the vulnerability of 21st century American democracy? We're going to talk about the state of American democracy and the rest of the world. So up next with a Yale professor. Timothy Snyder, he's next, 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio, broadcasting from the Boston Public Library.
2: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. She's Marjorie Egan. We are broadcasting from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. The role that foreign interference played in 2016 elections continues to dominate the news. Last week, we had Mark Zuckerberg testifying before Congress. This week, we have James Comey saying the Russians may have dirt on the president. And now we have to wonder why Trump is going easy on Putin by putting sanctions against Russia on hold. How do we get to this point where Russia has become a constant presence in our daily political discourse? It's explained in Timothy Snyder's latest book, The Road to Unfreedom, Russia, Europe, America. He's the Levin Professor of History at Yale University. Tim, thanks so much for being here. Very glad to be with you.
3: So, uh, great to talk to you, too. And before we get to to Russia, um, the title of your book, Jim said, The Road to Unfreedom. So I wonder if... You think that's where we're headed. I know in another book you said that we're no wiser than Europeans. Um, but is, is that what you see happening to the United States of America?
0: I see it as something which is likely happening across the Northern Hemisphere. The book is about Russia, Europe, and America together. And I think the key to understanding what's happening in the U.S. is to realize that we're in the middle of a bunch of processes which are taking place also in Europe and Russia. The book starts with Russia because Russia is furthest along, and Russia is beckoning us along this thing I call the road to unfreedom. The argument, and where the book lands, is that We can't delude ourselves with the idea that everything's always going to turn out right. Nor can we delude ourselves with the idea that it's everyone else's fault. The book is about trying to be where we are in history so we can see clearly and then start to do what needs to be done.
2: That's you're, you're, The first thing you describe there is what you call the politics of inevitability, right? which has been, even though none of us have ever used that term, that's the, the notion that we've all been at least subliminally, subliminally if not consciously, operating on. Politi- what are the politics of eternity there, Jim Snyder?
0: Yeah, I appreciate you saying that, Jim, because I, the, the politics of eternity is just a word that I made up to try to make it clear where we are. Another word for it would be progress, another might be American exceptionalism. The notion that All we have to do is kind of have a free ride in history because capitalism is gonna generate democracy and therefore everything's gonna be fine. Everything which seems wrong is just a blip or a bump in, in the road. That's just not true. That's an idea, it's a false idea. It's an idea which allows us to deny our own responsibility for what's going on. And when that idea crashes, when we hit a shock, like for example, many people did in 2008 or some of us did in 2016, then we're vulnerable to other bad ideas.
2: You had a shock in 2016. You'd finished your book, from what I understand. Is that not correct? And you said, oops, uh, I may have to uh, expand this or reboot this thing. That's true, is it not, with the election of Donald Trump?
0: Yeah, it was maybe a little bit less of a shock for me than it was for, for other people because I was the, the world that I was living in mentally was a Russian and Ukrainian world. Mm-hmm. And many of the things which took place in the Trump campaign in 2016 were simple copies of techniques which had already been used and worked over there. So in 2016, I was actually the first person to publish on the Trump-Putin connection, and I also wrote about Russian interference in direct interference in the elections in in August of 16. So I was surprised, but I was maybe a little bit less shocked than everyone else. And you're right, I wrote the last chapter, the one I'm proudest about, about about the United States in 2016, after Mr. Trump won. I mean, I, I thought that I had written a book which explained why the campaign could happen, and then it turned out I had to explain why the victory could happen.
3: Well, tell us uh, about uh, Vladimir Putin. Let's go to Russia for a while. Why, why does he want this destabilization here and uh, in so many other countries? What's going on with him?
0: Yeah, the basic, the basic logic is domestic, which is why one has to understand Russia. So if you are Mr. Putin, you're at the head of an oligarchical clan. You're a very rich man surrounded by a few other rich friends. And the way that you govern the country <clears throat> without the rule of law... Means that no one can really expect social advancement, so things are basically static. How do you then govern from that position? And this is a really interesting general question because we're all headed towards greater wealth inequality. The Russians have found a solution. The solution is you govern by spectacle, and the spectacle is of an innocent us constantly threatened by a decadent and corrupt them. Now, what Mr. Putin must tell his people is that this condition in Russia—no rule of law, ever-present corruption. That's normal. Europe's like that. America's like that. So the interesting thing about Russian propaganda is that it doesn't say Russia's great. It just says every place is equally corrupt. Therefore, you should love your own corruption. So his interest in destabilization is to make... America and to make Europe more like Russia. When they look out at us, they see our weaknesses, the things we sometimes deny to ourselves, and they try to expand those weaknesses to make them into what's the main truth about us.
2: Because, as you write, democracy and freedom are seen as a threat to his rule. Is Is that not so?
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, but not even the things, but the very concepts of democracy, freedom, and most of all, the rule of law. What, what they want Russians to believe is that this is normal. This is nature. It's always true that the people with the money have all the power and they get to lie to you. That's just the way it's always been. The idea that you could have another kind of regime where law actually worked, where people could say what they wanted, is intolerable. So, hence protests in Ukraine can't be accepted, hence the existence of the European Union is a bad thing, and hence the United States is a bad thing.
2: You also write about uh, some particular aberrations in our democracy that make us particularly vulnerable to to the behaviors of the Putins of the world. One of them is one of Marjorie's favorite topics with the Supreme Court considering extreme political gerrymandering. Talk about how the Electoral College and gerrymandering have sort of Played into the hands of Vladimir Putin.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is what I think of as a, as the dark globalization. If you're in the politics of inevitability, you think America's a democracy. We're great. We're normal. And what globalization is going to mean is everyone else becoming like us. But in fact we 've become less of a democracy in the last ten or twenty years, thanks to massive wealth inequality and thanks to practices like gerrymandering and the rest of the world does not look at us and say oh we 're a perfect model." Some people, like for example, those in the Kremlin, look at us and they say those practices or those tendencies are vulnerabilities which we can exploit so what Russia is like russia 's like a bad doctor who diagnoses you and then tries to make your diseases worse, but his diagnosis is correct so Things like our racial problems, our wealth inequality, and gerrymandering are all things which Russia specifically uses in its campaign in 2016. It, what they're trying to do is spin the ways that were not democratic even further.
2: And it seems to me that he got this whole notion of the electoral, the aberrations of the Electoral <inaudible> College yeah. and the so-called Rust Belt elect- <laughs> potentially electing this outlier, even though that theoretically was not... Putin's goal, it was more chaos, but he got that long before most of us in America and the
0: media got that. Is that not a fair statement? Well, if we, if we look back, honestly, at 2016, A, almost no one believed that Trump could win, right. and B, almost no one believed that Russia was interfering, right? Mm. Whereas he could win since he did, and Russia was interfering because they, because they were. So it's clear that we were trapped in some, in some kind of bubble. And when you're in a bubble, it can, be, it can be painful when someone else pierces it, but then the question is, what do you do next?
3: We're talking to Timothy Snyder. The new book is The Road to um, Unfreedom. Talk a little bit about, uh, you know, I, I'm not familiar with Russia, so I keep coming back to what I see going on in my own country, which is when you talk about inequality, a growing acceptance here, that that's the way it is. And one of the things I would w- cite is the fact that so many Americans who are barely able to put food on the table have accepted a tax bill that just gave huge income uh, tax breaks to large corporations and, and corporations, and the recent strikes, you know, in West Virginia and Oklahoma, the schools, where the schools are just so starved for money, uh, kids aren't able to learn anymore. But people seem to be accepting that. I mean, they're, they're protesting, but you know what I mean? We yeah. seem to normalize that here too.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a historian and I deeply, sincerely believe that you cannot have democracy without history because when you don't have something in the past or some point of comparison, you forget the things you need to know and, and, and new things then become normal immediately if you don't have history. So we can, if we don't have history, we can forget that the period from the 1940s to about 1980 was actually a period of closing a closing the gap of yeah. wealth inequality—the the gap between the top one percent and the bottom ninety percent—closed in the United States for four decades, thanks to the welfare state, thanks to and thanks to unions, right? Thanks to other things too. And that, that, that people, that wealth would be concentrated in the hands of not the top 1%, but really the top 0.01%. That's new. That's just the last 25 years. And it's also, it's also reversible. So um, that's the first thing, that there's a context. The second thing is that what you're describing is the politics of eternity. When you get a shock, when you feel like you're disabled, when you no longer think government can actually change the future, that's the politics of eternity, where you're not thinking, what could we all, how could we all do better thanks to sensible policy in America? But you're thinking, who's the enemy? Whose fault is this? How can I feel good today? That's what Mr. Trump brings. He brings us he brings nostalgia for the past, plus this everyday news cycle, which gets us elated or gets us outraged. If you no longer believe that government can do anything for you, right? Then you're in the politics of eternity.
3: So t- tell us about the, you, you talk a lot about fake news and the fake news in, in, uh, in Russia and in different countries, propaganda, lots of people would talk about it. The president has been very, very good um, at convincing people that the fake news is the real news and the mainstream, you know, the New York Times and the Washington Post are all liars. Excuse me, it's the
0: failing New York Times. You have the to failing that right, New York Times.
3: Yes. He's been very effective at that. And you see that in mm. the other countries you talk about.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is one of many examples of where Mr. Trump says things which seem new and you know shocking and destabilizing to us, but are actually just copies of Russian usages. So even the term fake news, that word fake in this context comes from the Russian language. They've been talking like that for more than 10 years. And Mr. Trump's specific tactic where you say, um, you, you say that the real news is the fake news, thereby spreading confusion and, then, and trying to encourage everyone to just be skeptical about everything all the time, to try to encourage people that everything's just a matter of opinion or feeling. That is a Russian tactic through and through, tried and true from Russia. Um, the second thing is that there is a response to this, which is to say, no, no. We live in a factual world, and without facts, we can't have the rule of law. Without facts, we can't have democracy. Without facts, we can't have civil society. We can't cooperate. We can't move forward together. And that we have to actively defend facts. They don't defend themselves, which means basic things like saying investigative reporters are heroes, which they are. That you should subscribe to newspapers. That if you have to be on social media, you should repost the work of investigative reporters. That we're all responsible for making the factual world resonate.
2: But how do we get – I mean, how do you get there? You know, Tim Snyder, we are – you know this far better than I – in a virtually fact-free or fact-averse environment. I mentioned on the show yesterday that I was watching Gary Tuckman on uh, CNN. He was sitting with 21 Trump supporters watching – Comey on ABC with George Stephanopoulos the other night. And while you can surely quarrel, one can surely quarrel with some of the things Comey said, some of his conclusions, there was not one single thing they heard in the 60 minutes of Stephanopoulos with Comey that caused any one of those 21 Trump supporters to crack their minds open, even a quarter of an inch where they were before is where they were after. How do you break free From an environment where, you know, that tired old expression, you can have your own opinion, but you can't have your own facts. Everybody has their own facts in
0: 2018. Yeah. First of all, we have to recognize that these things come in waves. So the the book... The book was also very destabilizing. I mean, you and I probably can agree that we like books, and we're talking about one right now. You know, I just, I spend my life writing them. But when the book was first invented, it was hugely destabilizing and spread all kinds of wild ideas and and caused war. So we shouldn't be so surprised that the Internet, instead of spreading enlightenment like its propaganda promised, instead creates these kind of niches where people can live where they want. Um, The second thing is we just can't give up on this. I mean, and this is a very important thing, I think, especially for people on the left to think about that, we cannot allow an atmosphere where the where feeling is first and feeling is everything because that's where that's what causes authoritarianism if people lose the ability totally to care about the facts and just want to be told what they want to hear that's when authoritarianism wins and it still does matter that we emphasize that facts matter or that we emphasize the particular facts the third thing is that the, the way that the, the internet works doesn't have to be the way that it works it can be it can work in different ways for example we could be asked what algorithm we want to use on social platforms social platforms front end could be set up in a different way so that we would have access to things you can have warnings about sources like reddit's doing where you say if you're reading this you should mm-hmm. really be checking your facts and so on. So we shouldn't think that technology is either all good or all bad. Technology works with us in history, and if we take responsibility for things, we can get hold of it and make it work in different ways.
2: You know, can we go lower tech for a second? You don't miss, spend much time on your book on Fox News, but another thing that Marjorie oh, is obsessed with, I should say, <laughs> uh, is it too strong to say they've been a collaborator, uh, uh, witting sometimes, unwitting others with this Russian for lack of a better expression,
0: disinformation campaign in America. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a very interesting question about, I think, and I'll, I'll go all conservative now, about sovereignty and information. I mean, what does it mean when you open up your information space, not just to in the internet, but to corporations whose interest has, has nothing to do with a sensible discussion inside the United States? Mm-hmm. Fox News is an example of that, right? There's nothing patriotic about Fox News. Fox News is a profit-making enterprise, which has nothing to do with the United States of America, and it's not, it's not alone in that. So... Just to ask whether they're a collaborator, I think there's an interesting point here, which is when the Russian story breaks in 2016, people are very slow to pick it up. And there's an odd way in which a lot of the American right, including a lot of American right wing commentators, downplay something which ordinarily in conventional conservative terms would have mm-hmm. been seen as treason. Right. So there's a strange way in which there's a kind of there's a kind of cosmopolitanism of the right, which says, well, it doesn't matter if another country is violating our sovereignty, so long as it's supporting our goals. Oh, right. And in a broad way, I mean, not just a lot of the right wing media, but a lot of the, the Republican leadership in Congress uh, collaborated in that specific way. And having done so, it's very hard to dig themselves back out.
2: We're talking to Timothy Snyder. His book is The Road to Unfreedom. And,
3: and that kind of collaboration is a pattern that you see over and over again in different countries that move from democracies to much more authoritarian states. The people that you think are going to stand up against this don't.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's why I wrote On Tyranny, which is my little political pamphlet, yes. which, which popped up in the middle of this book, um, that you, you can't expect that the people you expect are going to do the right thing. You have to do the right thing yourself. And there's there's a, there's specific patterns that one has to worry about like you yeah, have
3: 20 point guide, right? You got a guide.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, which I mean which has kept me busy this last year and has helped me to learn about America for which I've been really grateful because I've been traveling with it. But it you you can't expect for example that, that people on the center-left are going to stop the extreme-left. You can't expect that the conservatives are going to stop the far-right. The history of the 1920s and 1930s tells a very different story, that sometimes, for example, as in Nazi Germany, people who just want to crush unions and keep wages down end up opening the way for someone like Hitler. Or people who are spreading political fictions of a certain kind open the way up for Hitler, even if that's not what they actually intended. So, yeah, you can't expect that the, the that the moderates on the right or left are going to stop the extremes. You have to think about it yourself.
3: Let's talk a little bit about uh, immigration, because that's been one of the, the president's uh, big... Uh, you know, immigrants are causing lots of problems. And you talk about knowing our history. I mean, this isn't the first time we've had terrible backlash against immigration and immigrants coming to the United States. But this whole thing in Hungary that I read about a couple of weeks ago, where immigration was such a platform of this guy, Orban, that just was elected overwhelmingly, and now there's protests in the streets and stuff. Um, I was reading about what his campaign argued about, and it was very similar to what the president has talked about in terms of blaming things on uh, immigrants and refugees, and particularly Muslim refugees, and then a lot of uh, a blame. You don't hear Donald Trump talk a lot about this, but you hear uh, some conservatives talk about this, You know, blaming George Soros, the billionaire philanthropist.
0: Yeah, this is this is a reminder of how politics used to work under fascism. And it's, it's an example of what I'm calling the politics of eternity, where it's no longer the we of citizens or the we in our country and then a world out there. But it's an us and them where the them are always inside and the them are always threatening. The they are inside our country and they represent some kind of inchoate global conspiracy or, or global threat. That's how Mr. Trump has changed politics in the United States. We no longer have a functional State Department. We no longer have a functional foreign policy. There's no way in which the United States represents itself clearly vis-a-vis the world. Instead, our real conflicts are inside. It's the we and they of whites and blacks, or the we and they of Christians and Muslims, or the we and they of people who have been here for a long time and people who are immigrants, which, are push, which, which substitute for any kind of sensible policy. And what, you know, what, what Orban and Mr. Trump, and for that matter Mr. Pence, have in common is that the fewer immigrants you have, the more you talk about them. There aren't actually any Syrian refugees in Hungary, right? just like there aren't any in Indiana. But when you don't have them, then you talk about them. Tim Snyder, when you heard uh, James Comey
2: say the other night in response to Stephanopoulos, same interview, it's possible the Russians
0: have dirt on Donald Trump. What's your reaction to that? Uh, it's, I, I think we have to be really careful about waiting for the one sensational piece that blows the story wide open. One of the things which has gone wrong when we change news into entertainment, which goes back to your question about Fox and which the Russians also do, is that we expect there to be a, a, conc- like a cinematic conclusion mm-hmm. where suddenly like, everything falls into place the truth about the relationship between the trump campaign and the russia and russia is that there is already overwhelming evidence of all kinds of witting and unwitting collaboration that should already be the story of the day what's most compelling in that litany to you Most compelling to me is the fact that Mr. Trump simply would not exist as a public figure in the United States of America at all were it not for Russian financial support in the 1990s and the 2000s. He's not even a candidate for the Republican nomination without them, and that's true even before um, the hacking of the Democratic Party and the massive social media intervention.
3: Hold on for a second. I don't, I'm not sure I follow you because, because of his financial support that enabled him to rise up from these terrible bankruptcies and maintain I'm a billionaire superstar thing?
0: Yeah. I mean, let's think about Mr. Trump. <clears throat> Is he an entertainer or a businessman, right? He's not a businessman because he bankrupted six times right. and no American institution would lend him money. And yet we think of him as a businessman because he played one on TV. But, of course, those are two completely different skill sets. I know lots of successful businessmen, but not a single one could play one on TV. Right. And this should give us pause for thought. What actually happens with Mr. Trump is that he fails completely as a businessman. He's propped up by Russian entities in these odd licensing deals, which then allows him <clears throat> excuse me, to have a profile in America as an entertainer. And because of that profile as an entertainer, he can then run for office. you know,
3: <laughs> We're getting to the end here, so I want to end on an up, upbeat I have a, note.
0: No, Can I end on one more downbeat note? Okay, you go you downbeat, then note? I'll go upbeat. Go ahead.
3: Uh,
2: uh, there is not a, <laughs> an elected official, a congressman or senator who comes on the show where Marjorie does not ask the following question, so I'll ask it of you. Uh, are we any more prepared to deal with Russian interference in 2018 than we were not prepared in 2016? Every one of them says we are thoroughly unprepared. Are, are they right?
0: Well, I mean, one one of the big tells about Trump and Putin is the way that he talks about Putin. And in particular, our inability to directly react to the Russian intervention. Were we to directly react, it would be to close down the gray zones of capitalism, um, the offshoring, the anonymous real estate deals, the anonymous businesses, that gray zone of capitalism that allowed Mr. Trump and the Russians to meet in the first Mm -hmm. place. We're not doing that. That's the thing we can do. Are we more prepared? I think as citizens, we're more prepared. I think the government is not... What does that mean? What do you mean? I think more of us are going to vote in the midterms. I think better people are running. I think at the state and local level, people are going to watch out. I think there is greater awareness among citizens yes. about how to use the Internet. At that level, I think we as citizens will do slightly better. It's unfortunate that the top of the federal government, you know, where the action ought to come from, will do nothing.
2: By the way, when you said we're better prepared to use the Internet better, you're also an anti-couch activist kind of person, are you not? Because I am too. Margie and I often
0: fight about that. People should actually get up. And do rather yeah. than just type. Correct. The, the only, the only, the only good way to use the internet is to encourage people to get off the internet. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so, so uh, the, uh, t- uh, we're talking with Timothy Snyder. His new book is uh, Road to Unfreedom. But you also wrote this little book about on tyranny um, uh, um, and how to a- avoid uh, tyranny in the 20th century. So, people listening to you now are upset and they're worried. Should we go out and get this book? We'll sell more books for you. I mean, what do we do? What do we do to kind of resist? Um, Other this? than get off the Internet, yeah. as you Yeah, I mean, I mean, you give a lot of suggestions, so give us, give us some.
0: Yeah, I mean, what the two books have in common, both on tyranny and the road to is that they, they insist that we have to be in history. So the first lesson of On Tyranny is don't obey in advance, which means don't just adapt to the flow, whether you're outraged or elated. Don't just adapt to it. Decide for yourself what's normal and then start doing little things to make that normality come into being. The next lessons, 2 through 20, are all about how you can support institutions, federal, local, non-governmental organizations, how you can make yourself into a more active citizen. But the crucial thing is to pick something you know about and care about to work on it in a way which involves other people in the real world, and to keep at it whether you feel good or bad on a given day. If we all do that, it makes a huge difference. you feel better?
3: I, I, I like the call to an involved citizenry. I think that's uh, very important because too many of us are too passive and we're ready to do that. Well, normalize the, the, things. look, the
0: psychology is really important because authoritarianism wins not because it overpowers us with force, but because it overpowers our minds and it creates the sense that we really can't do anything. Um, this is the new normal. You, you have to activate yourself individually against that. And if you do, it makes a difference. Kim well, nice to meet you. Congratulations on a
3: terrific, a terrific book and a body of work. Timothy Snyder is the Levin Professor of History at Yale University. His latest book is The Road to Unfreedom, Russia, Europe, and America. Timothy Snyder, great to talk to you. Thank you very much. And coming up, a video of Cambridge police punching a black, naked Harvard student is dealing a debate about race, policing, and the use of force. Andrea Cabral joins us for her take on this and other news. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio, broadcasting live from the Boston Public Library. He's Jim Browdy. And she's Marjorie Egan. And this is 89.7 WGBH, WGBH HD1, Boston.
2: Online at WGBHnews.org.
3: Boston's local NPR.
2: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan, live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. Joining us for another edition of Law and Orders, is Andrew Cabral. Andrew is the former Suffolk County Sheriff, former Secretary of Public Safety for Massachusetts. Hello, Andrew Cabral. Hello,
10: Jim Browdy. Hello, Marjorie Egan. Well, Good we to got, see you. There we are, Mike's Good on. to see you, Andrew nice
2: to Cabral.
3: See you. Uh, so there's been a big story about the Cambridge police uh, apprehending a uh, upset young black man who was naked. Apparently some young woman called the cops when she said he threw his clothes at her. Uh, and there was um, this young man was not only taken down to the ground, but you could see him being hit in the torso um, several times. The police commissioners defended his officers. Um, Drew Faust is very upset. The mayor of Cambridge is very upset. Some Harvard students are very upset. What's your take on this incident?
10: Well, he's a Harvard student, apparently, Um, uh, this young man, and there are a few things at play here, and you've heard uh, um, some quoted in the story and then others uh, uh, in media talking about what's known as the use of force continuum. So there's a, there's a, uh, a continuum of acceptable force that can be used to subdue someone that goes from very, very minor force or just simple conversation to an ultimate use of force, depending on the level of danger that person presents to others or, or to themselves. And so what you had in this case was uh, you know, a young man who uh, wasn't wearing any clothes. And from the video that I saw, you see initially it's three officers sort of surrounding him on this uh, median, this sort of island. And then they see, there appears to be a fourth officer, possibly a commander, that comes into, comes into play. And so... As I look at it, and I'm familiar with the use of force continuum because it's certainly used in corrections, they do appear to be talking to him at the very beginning. Yes. At the point at which they say he balls up his fists um, is when they decide to take him down. Now, in corrections, if you do a forced cell removal, if you have to forcibly remove an inmate from a cell, in addition to the officers getting um, completely suited up, everyone on that team, it's called a cert team, has a particular role. This particular officer's role is to merely get control over this person's right arm. This other officer's role is to get control over the, over the left arm and both legs. And everyone's assigned to a different party part so that you are taking this person down by controlling their mechanism of getting up and getting at you. And the first thing I wondered looking at this video was why not a little conversation and a little coordination that says, look, if we can't talk him down from this, I'm going to be standing here, you'll be here, you'll be here, you'll be here, and each person take an appendage. The way he was taken down was an officer lunged at him sort of, sort of from the back, a little bit from the side, and sort of pushed him into another officer. Then he was ultimately taken down. I, I'm not saying that that was completely wrong, but I think they could have done that a better way. The punches that occur once he's down and he's subdued, even if he's, even if he's struggling... He doesn't have a weapon, and there are four of you, so you don't have to punch him, and even Thomas Nolan, I think, um, uh, who I believe is a former trooper. Uh, I know he's a
3: former police officer. I'm not sure what kind of police I, officer.
10: I kind of, I thought he was a trooper. I, I'll stand corrected right. if he's not, but said, you know, he thought that everything that he saw was appropriate, up, he said, except maybe the punches. That's... That's the problem. Well, it, I was a little confused because
3: I read this uh, Megan Iron's piece in The Globe. It was a great piece about uh, the, the Cambridge police uh, chief basically defending the officers. And he talked about the same thing you're talking about, this continuum of, of a force. Now, according to this story, it, as you say, it begins with verbal commands, control holds, other less lethal force measures, anything from punches and kicks to use of a baton or pepper spray. And I, I was surprised by that, that it was ever okay to be punching and kicking someone.
10: Well, I could certainly see if someone is lunging at you with a weapon and yeah. you don't want to discharge your gun, you don't want to shoot them, Okay. if there's a way that you can knock it out of their hand or, or punch them or try to knock them out that way so that you can you can take... I can understand that. But this person the on the ground. Right. Without right. a weapon. That's yes. the important thing to remember about the use of force continuum is that the the use of force must be commensurate with the threat that is being presented and the point at which your use of force exceeds what is necessary to subdue the threat. That is defined as excessive force. Okay, so you're not supposed to kick or punch someone right. who is on the ground. And in this case, you have a person who is not only unarmed, but they are naked. I know that on the one hand, that may make that difficult because you can't grab any piece of clothing. Yeah. But on the other hand, like I said, some coordination. If, you, if, I'm, if I'm, my whole job is to focus on getting this person's left arm under control, and I have three other officers who are going to each take... Uh, another appendage, and get that under control, you can subdue a person. You certainly don't need once they're down and there are four of you on him. I don't know that you need to... You, the, the punches, I, I think, were excessive, and I, I was a little bit surprised that the the, um, the commissioner um, was defending those because the the other thing you do is you look at... The, it's called the use of force continuum because you look at how the force progresses depending on what stage of subduing the person the officers are at. And that stage at which the punches are thrown, he's already on the ground.
2: We're talking to Andrew Cabral. You know, Andrea, I, I, obviously, based on your explanation, other than the pun, well, not other than the it's a closer question than what we're going to ask you about next. There's not a week that comes by. Do you know? I know you know this. There's not a week that we see you right. where there's not an African American person who was shot. Kicked out of something. I mean, it's just, there is literally, and we talked earlier with our listeners about the Starbucks thing in Philadelphia. And uh, uh, it, it, I, I think it's other than one caller who made a valiant attempt to make the case that uh, we were just jumping on the liberal bandwagon to criticize anything anybody does to black people that they don't like. Uh, 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 I thought Renee Graham wrote a really interesting piece this morning that's who said, or maybe yesterday afternoon it was online saying essentially you, you, the thread, I'm putting words in her mouth, but the, threat, the, the concept is the right one, the thread through almost all these things we've seen where there have been some horrible, fatal outcomes to something far less benign, it wasn't benign, but no one was hurt, the, this thing in, uh, at Starbucks, is uh, white people's fear mm-hmm. of black people. You're mm-hmm. smiling at me. Do you buy it?
10: Oh, it's absolutely true. Renee, Renee Graham's column is, is, is spot on. And it's we don't have enough time in, in the context of this segment to go into all of or the, in a lifetime the making right to go into what has over the years um, created that and that what perpetuates it now even now. Um, but well, it give is us a the very Cliff Notes version.
2: Thing. What do you think did create it and what do you think does perpetuate it?
10: It's really hard to do it in a Cliff Notes version, but it does start with the way people of color, or black people in particular, came to this country. So you're starting off with a race of people who, because they are to be enslaved, must be subdued. Mm -hmm. And you have to use the law for that. And you have to use uh, uh, culture for that. You have to construct your society around subduing and oppressing. And all of that, in order to justify that, and this is just where I'm starting in this conversation. In order to justify that, you have to, be a, you have to tell yourself that they are to be feared. Because otherwise so,
2: there's no justification for continuing. For
10: beating and chaining and whipping and owning. You have, to tell, you have to tell yourself that they are inferior and that they deserve to be enslaved and that they are to be feared if, they are ever to, if, you, if you ever let them go. But you move forward in that continuum and you look at the, the, the examples of, that, that have been enshrined in television and in film... And in books, even scientific uh, novels, for decades, the th- the images, the themes, the narratives that have been that have portrayed black people as people to be feared, um, simultane- simultaneously feared and simultaneously uh, uh, co-opted in terms of uh, of culture and other things. And it's really, like I said, it's a, it's a that's a superficial sort of an answer to a very very complicated question, but. Um, there's a lot more to it than well, you know, that, but, but it's, exactly, particularly, it's a fact. And
3: it's particularly, correct me if I'm wrong, black men, more yes. than black women. Yeah. Yeah, black There's men. There's a
10: reason that Birth of a Nation was considered to be, the D.W. Griffith version, mm-hmm. was considered to be um, such a great film that I believe it was Woodrow Wilson, screened it at the White House. And, and Birth of a Nation was about the birth of the Klan, and the birth of the Klan was based on the need to react to the fear of black men. Newly, newly freed black men. Right. Yeah. So, you
2: know, the thing that makes that thesis, which you think is more than a thesis, and so does Renee Graham, yeah. even more troubling why. than a lot of the other things we talked to you about, is because we always try with you, at least, to talk solutions, even if they're not immediate ones. You know, there's got to be more training, there's got to be a more diverse police force, there's got to be this, there's got to be that. What do you do, if you're right, and your historical progression is right, what does one do about that?
10: Um, not to be glib, but it, that's a you problem, not a me problem. Well, okay, so then, <laughs> yeah, then
2: you know, help me yeah, out if it is a you problem. Because nothing
10: prob- that we have done over the years has served to dissipate it, and you see in particular where you have someone like Trump in the White House and you have essentially um, the most blatant sort of white supremacist uh, government that you've had in a long time, you see how quickly it escalates. I mean, it was, it's, it's, it's astonishing how thin the veneer of civility was and that it only took somebody like Trump to, 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 for us to go immediately beneath that veneer of civility. And you see a huge spike in hate crimes. Um, not just toward, uh, toward black people. There's a, there's a huge spike in religious bigotry. There's a huge spike in, in misogyny and, and gender-based violence. So, you know, I, I don't, in terms of the, the black-white dynamic, understanding, we could start with understanding that the, the co- black and white are they're social constructs. There are no white people and there are no black people per se. Those are social constructs. Those are ideas that are built around a notion of whiteness and what that entitles people to, versus a notion of blackness and what, what that how that may disenfranchise people. You know, I don't mean to sound like Pollyanna over here, but I've all it, you know. It seems
3: like integration is a helpful uh, situation. We used to have very integrated uh, Boston public schools. We don't anymore. They're like I don't know what they are like seventy percent or eighty percent or whatever the number is. In my, but growing up. Uh, in an integrated environment, which most of us don't.
2: So why aren't you the opposite well, of Pollyanna? Because Pollyanna, cause the trend in the one example you picked is in the exact wrong direction because essentially white people decided let's go to suburban well, schools. So well, okay, that I, shouldn't cities- said,
3: I shouldn't have said Pollyanna. Well, I guess what I'm saying is it, it, it's like, it seems like it's like anything else. If you become friendly with gay people, African American people, Latino people you're not going to have these these opinions that you would if you were in living in a bubble,
10: I think. But here... But, okay, so I want to say two things about that. First of all, understand that in terms of sheer time, the history of this country is 246 years of slavery, 100 years of segregation in Jim Crow, uh, you know, post-Reconstruction. Um, and only from basically 1954 on has there been a real... some real effort in this country... Yep. And we're in 2018. So that's in the continuum of this country's existence. The vast majority of the time this country has existed as a country on this earth has been devoted um, to something less than equality, far less than equality. Can I interrupt you
2: for 10 seconds? And you know a Trump nominee testifying in front of a congressional decision, speaking of yes. 1954, v- yeah. who was unwilling Vitters. to say the other day whether or not she thought Brown versus Board of Education right. was correctly right. decided. Vitters. Wendy right. Vitters, right. Wendy Vitters. Right. I'm sorry, go ahead. No,
10: she absolutely, she absolutely said that. And, you know, that'll be fine with The, the GOP Congress will uh, undoubtedly uh, <laughs> uh, vote to confirm her. Based um, on that alone. <laughs> right,
4: right. Oh, I should yeah. be laughing. But go th- ahead, I'm the, sorry. Part, Andy, of the,
10: part of the other uh, problem is that why, this is the question I would have for you, back to your question yeah. to me. Why is, it, why is it necessary always for non white people to be exposed to white people at a greater level in order for white people to see them as equal? That's a let's yeah, see, that, but I that's, think that there's, but that's the beginning of the privilege. Right. That's the beginning of the privilege. The idea is I am entitled to hold these views of you until and unless someone makes an effort to expose me to other things whereby I can learn. That's the fundamental No, that's well, a I, point. You know, Well, that's actually, a I want point. to counter
2: that. I don't, I'm not sure it is as great a point because I would argue that the human condition is we're all nervous about those things and people who are different from us. Marjorie, when she mentioned gay people, for example, the poll that we have cited maybe 50,000 times in the years we've been on the radio, it was a poll in the late 90s on uh, gay marriage. And the only two sets of people who supported gay marriage were young people because they're much more enlightened, and those who said they knew a gay person. And my sense is, I mean, I I look at myself, things that are new to me, uh, I hope I'm not any more racist than any well-intended White person is. i am sure let there's you know when we're off the air. <laughs> <laughs> You've let me know already. But I, I'm uh, things that are different make me nervous. Things, people, I mean, and you want to wait in and get to know them. So I'm not sure. I mean, I'm, there's a piece of what you said, Andrea, that does have legitimacy. Why should we have to be exposed to you for you to deign to accept us as equals? But it is a human condition that things that are not like us, things, experiences that are not ones we've had. I think that applies to all people, not just white people, by the way. Here's the difference. What's the difference?
10: The reaction that you are entitled to have to things that are different is drastically different than the reaction that that everyone else is entitled to have if you are different to them. That is totally true. That's the privilege that I'm talking about with Marjorie. Yeah, totally. Well, sort of I,
3: I, I am full of privilege. I mean, there's no question about it. I try to battle it every day, hey, Andrea. I'm doing the best I can. No,
10: no, no. no. I did not, and I, I did not mean that I'm personally. Only, I'm only but we keep talking you. historically, I'm and we teasing. keep talking about going forward. And you, you know, the, the this is the way that affirmative action turns into reverse discrimination, right? How mm-hmm. would that? How, it, it, the idea that the very thing that you're talking about, which is giving people an equal opportunity, and then simultaneously increasing the world view yeah. of everyone in that situation by making, by creating a diverse workplace turns into, oh, that's just politically correct. In, uh, that's just being politically yeah. correct. And you're just looking at a quota and you're just, um, it's, you're, you're discriminating against me. How does something that, that effort turn into reverse discrimination? And the answer to that is because the way that you are entitled to react to things that are different is different than the way Marjorie is entitled to react and the way I'm entitled to react.
2: That, unfortunately, I would have to agree with. We're talking to Andrea uh, Cabrera. Well,
10: we're going to say the same subject of perceptions of, of
3: black men because we have the story of Starbucks out of Philadelphia where these two young black men were apparently waiting for a business... Uh, a, a third guy to show up. They're going to talk some business. Who did them. actually show up? Yep, he did actually show up. And um, one of them went to use the restroom. They didn't uh, buy anything yet, and they were asked to leave. And uh, six police officers uh, showed up and handcuffed them
10: and took them out of there. Right. Um, yes, because I mean, the, uh, they were the rest, just trying the, to get to know thing, black people.
2: So that right,
10: right. isn't that what a, <laughs> the, <laughs> the first thing a, that's <laughs> astonishing to me about the story is? The idea that anybody would complain about loitering in Starbucks, I, I don't really, I don't actually like the coffee. So I don't go there very often, but I have gone there to meet other people. Yeah. and You know, that because they you like the there coffee for or hours. whatever. Right. Hours. How about the people come in and get, get not purchase nothing or purchase a small coffee and sit there with their laptop yep. using it Forever. as their home office? Forever. Forever. I've, I've never seen anybody asked to leave a Starbucks. Um, so the idea that this was like there's this huge loitering problem and then when you take a step back and you get the 30,000-foot view, which is about that particular uh, neighborhood, which actually there are probably many uh, like that across the country. And Be the careful. Fact My that... mother lived there. Okay? Really? Yeah, well, apparently, it's, uh, it's, uh, I think it's called the Rittenhouse neighborhood. Rittenhouse neighbor... Square. Rittenhouse, Rittenhouse. One Square. Of the most uh, where appealing
2: parts of Philly, ordinarily.
10: Black people account for 67% of the stops in that neighborhood, not just in that <laughs> Starbucks, but in that neighborhood, while they only account for, is it... 3% of the population? I would say it's
2: really low. I don't know yeah. what the percentage is. I would so it's, 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 of- a
10: larger, it's a larger, it's a much larger problem. It doesn't just happen in Starbucks. I have, I have walked into stores and immediately drawn the attention of every available salesperson who desperately wants to know if they can help me. Meanwhile, there's a million other people in the store and nobody's interested in helping them. I have had, I have, I have, I once had a woman who was standing across the street from me, an older woman, um... And I, as I was coming across the street, she just looked at me and she um, clasped her purse, closed it tighter. Purges and I'm thinking, and I mean, I, and, I'm, and I'm looking at her and I'm Maybe. looking at the way that she's dressed and I'm thinking, lady, I hand up more in tips than you pay in taxes. <laughs> I have no interest in your handbag. But it infuriates you. And you have to understand that people with this, who suffer this kind of treatment every single day in some way, shape, or form, you carry that anger with you. You carry that stress with you. You have to be hypervigilant in places that you go because you are not allowed to be or exist in places the way other people are. And it's, you know, I, I, credit, the, I credit the Starbucks CEO. Um, oh come on. Uh, No, I, I, I hey, will give I him, it's will give him credit. Nothing. It's, it's a better than CYA Denny's. Thing so is, what? But so remember what? the stuff that happened at Denny's. Yeah, you've heard the various racist things that have yeah. happened at places like Denny's. They just kind of move on. They go, "Sorry, we didn't mean for that to happen," and they just kind of move on. Yeah, I like this. I will at least in. give them. I will at least give them that kind of credit. I do agree that that it is it is a it, to protect the brand is all you must protect the brand. Mm-hmm. But I, but I will say this that they are at least keyed into their younger demographic as yes. Starbucks. Starbucks, and if, and if nothing else, they're forward thinking in terms of how they want to resolve this so that the, the brand isn't permanently damaged. But I am
3: trying to redeem myself on my Pollyanna point before about integration, <laughs> because, because I grew up in a, in a, in a, not a, uh, a, in kind of a poor town, but there were almost no black people. Everybody that was Cape Verdean and black was in New Bedford. Everybody that's Cape Verdean and white was in Fall River. My children have grown up very differently and their friendships and their perspectives and their attitudes are so different from mine. Now, that's maybe pollyanna but it's fairly obvious that, it, you know what I'm saying, that your, your white children will see the racism that they're, or they'll hear, their buddy will say, you've got to hail the cab because the cab's not going to stop for me. Or hear the, the, the N-words when they're out with the basketball team at, at, the, at the pizza joint in Brookline, you know, and, and I never understood that until I was much older and frankly began covering crime as a newspaper reporter. So that's why I'm maybe a little Pollyanna but I do think.
2: Throw her a bone, Andrea. Come yeah, on. throw
3: me a
10: bone. Throw her a bone. Listen, I, I will say this. I think that that is true of every single generation. I mean, I, you look at the impact no. that rock and roll.
2: Yeah, it being point. having
10: been a for very that's forbidden very thing, because parents considered it to be now, I say this putting aside the degree to which you know it was essentially rhythm and blues and the blues co-opted in large part, you know, uh, by the Elvis Presleys and the others of the world. But what it did do was it created this sort of hybrid, right? So that you did have a Chuck Berry sort of alongside um, of an Elvis Presley, and kids what kids wanted kind of rule the roost because young, what's young and up and coming is always going to, you know, drive what you see on TV, what you hear on the radio. So kids have been historically the ones that have moved the country forward in terms of enlightened ideas. What seems to happen, though, is that they get older. Like, I'm not the same as I was when I was, um, you know, when I was younger, um, I grumble about stuff like an old person you grumbles it about stuff because I'm older, right. Yeah. <laughs> you do turn into your parents, and then it becomes really up upsetting. to your kids to move it forward, and that's why I think it, moves, it doesn't move forward at the pace at which it should. But if you, if you go back to that continuum that I talked about of 246 years of slavery, 100 years of uh, Jim Crow and segregation, we're only talking about between 1954 and now for, for significant change to take place, and as a couple of people made clear on Twitter, uh, Emmett Till happened from 54 on you know there's plenty of examples of things from 54 on that 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 are heinous that's why I think it's really important um, who's in the White House right now and the kinds of anti-immigrant sentiments and the kinds of bigoted sentiments I mean the fact that Steve Bannon was there the fact that Stephen Miller is still there that is a very big deal in, the, in this country's, the continuum of this country and race relations, what is going on right now by people who are determined to bring us back another 50 years. And I, think that's, I just think it's dangerous for the country, and it's a shame.
2: It's good to see Andrew. Yeah. Cabral. Oh, am I done? So no, we don't
3: have time to talk about the immigration uh, ICE people who threw the, the guy out of the country, beca- or tried to, because he said yeah. he looked Mexican. We don't have time for that. We'll get to that next week. Okay. Good to see you, Andrea. Thanks well, this so is, much. We just had a little racial talk-in right here on Boston Public Radio, such as it is. Thank you very much, Andrew Gabral. Andrew Cabral joins us every week. She's the former Suffolk County Sheriff and Secretary of Public Safety. Coming up, we're opening lines. This is a very serious issue, but a lot of us can relate to this, asking you about what you do when you socialize with friends who make much more money than you or just maybe a little bit more money than you and you're out to dinner or out socializing. That's next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio.
2: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. We're live from our GVH studio at the Boston Public Library, opening lines and asking you about Dining al Destitute. (laughs) What do you do when your friends make more than you do, and they just want to split the bill right down the middle, even if you ordered the $5 house salad and a beer... And your friend ordered the Mahi Mahi and a martini. It's a predicament that Carabaskin raises in the Boston Globe. It's the one we want to raise with you at 877-301-8970. How do you handle situations where your friends aren't sensitive to your financial constraints? Or are you someone who used to scrape by and I'm in this category? And now you're the friend with money. Are you enlightened? Are you oblivious? Do you have a discrete way of dealing with that differential when you go out for a social event? The social event of all social events, a meal, 877 301 8970. By the way, this is not a non issue. There are finances, are one of the things that separate and also destroy friendships. Forget relation. I mean, like yeah. interpersonal relationships, one on one relationships. It's a huge Deal, how do you deal with this? We both make very decent salaries. If you you're out with somebody who's making, you know, not minimum wage, we're making a lot less, you go, how do you deal with that situation? Do you order, you know what I will often do, which is totally dead wrong? Or order,
3: order something inexpensive. I may not
2: order a drink that I would order, which is or, pathetic. Or, it's so patronizing. Yeah, well,
3: it's pathetic. I don't want to go that far because if I'm going to go out for dinner, I want to have a nice drink. You want to get drunk, one. right? I don't right exactly. I don't be drunk, right? Well, is. that is the problem because it's booze. It's so expensive. So what do you do? I mean, if you are a big drinker, and you're out with someone who doesn't drink then you have one drink and then or if you insist upon having two drinks then you offer to pay uh, for that for those extra drinks Okay, you're
2: going to make fun of me, I know, uh, when I say this. Yep. But I am of the belief if you're really friendly with that's one of it's casual mm-hmm. this is embarrassing. If you're really friendly with somebody and you know that they're, you know, doing a decent uh, a paid job but not great yeah. and you know you make a much better living. I don't think there's anything wrong in a nice honest way to say we should not split this 50/50. I should pay a little bit more, and when you're doing, when you're making a little bit better, you'll return the favor. What's wrong with that? Think, an honest I conversation. Anything, I don't
3: think anything's wrong with that. And
2: how about you know another possibility that I've thought about? But I
3: think when you're broke, you tend to not go out for dinner at all because you're afraid of being in a situation where you're not going to be able to afford it. You know, you well, feel embarrassed. Well, that's the
2: situation. The other possibility, I think, I know you'll support this. Okay, John. I think people should think about bringing their W-2s with them <laughs> to dinner. And then you you probably don't remember. I was the last person to try to get to graduate income tax in Massachusetts. You put your W-2s in the middle of the table. You do a calculation, and that's how you divide the bill. By the way, this is a real serious dilemma, and you know that everybody at the table is thinking about it. And by the way, there's another version of this too. Somebody else brings their kid or brings something. Are you supposed to split the bill? Even if you have equal incomes, when that person has four people sitting there and you have two. Honesty is the best policy See, to coin to a phrase me, here. it's kind
3: of a it's, – it's, it's degree. What if do you If you mean? have four people and you're all going to agree to go out to dinner and somebody has a salad and a Diet Coke and somebody else has a normal entree and a glass of wine and then you start the, – the salad person starts nitpicking over, over the bill, my deal is you should just stay home. You shouldn't, you shouldn't go out if you're going to be that. It's a little that. late for that, isn't it? Yeah, but, the, but that's kind of the, 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 the um, polite thing, I think. But if somebody's going to go out and they're going to have the salad and the Diet Coke and you're going to have – Four martinis. Then the person who has the four martinis has to say, "Hey, you know, I, I know I had extra drinks, so let me throw in an extra, whatever it is, for thirty bucks, forty bucks, or something like that." You know, is it is a degree?
2: What do you have? Four martinis. What do you do? do you I offer have to never pay had more? four
3: martinis. What's in the most in my life? you ever had at a meal? And a meal, yeah. I would say after three? one martini, I am in no shape so. to continue. Eight
2: seven seven three zero one eighty nine. Martini is very strong, Jim.
3: What? You wouldn't know that. They're very strong. Well, I'm are like drinking you like know. three ounces of booze. You know what I mean? I know what you mean. The headline
2: to Carabaskin's piece is, dinner with friends gets tricky when you don't have the same economic bandwidth, and I could not agree more. We want to know how you've dealt with those circumstances, regardless of which end you're on, the lower economic end or the higher end. How do you deal with those conundrums?
3: And she talks also about, um, you know, these other situations where you have relatives come to town. Just, and they're going to stay with you, and then you're going to maybe cook them dinner, but then you're going to go out for dinner, and then they don't pick up the check. Hmm. That would really be too much for me. Put
2: their stuff out on the street. You I have mean, to do it. You've got to be extreme. Cindy and Lynn, you're first on Boston Public Radio. How do you deal with such circumstances? Welcome.
9: Hi. Well, first I want to say hi, Jim. Hi, Marty, I love you guys. Thank Thank you very much. This is my third time calling.
2: (laughs) Thank you for doing it. Keep doing it. What's going on?
9: I will. I will. I'm on the lower end of the economy. So this is how I deal with it or I have in my experience. You have to communicate beforehand. Um, If you're going to split the bill or if each person, like, is it going to be separate bills, you definitely have to talk about it beforehand. Now, if you don't feel comfortable talking about it before then you probably shouldn't be out with those people for dinner. Number one, or you can just—if you know that it's going to be split evenly—just order the most expensive thing. Kind of
2: <laughs> By the way, yeah, when I one, was Cindy. making a lot less money, I cannot lie—I did exactly that latter thing. There, Cindy. Yeah, Cindy's. Thanks for your third call, Cindy. Make a fourth one soon. She's an honesty person, as I said, but an honesty before, but it puts a weird kind of. I mean, I, I subscribe to that notion. Maybe this is a But it gender almost puts thing. a damper on the whole thing before.
3: Maybe it's easier for a woman uh, to say, hey, you know what? I'm kind of I'm pressed with, the, with the, you know, the nanny costs, whatever. Let's go get a pizza. I can't do something expensive. Let's go do a pizza. Maybe, you know, a man can't admit that he's broke. And it's harder from, you know, to be macho when you don't have two cents to contribute So to the how dancing. do you feel
2: if you do what Cindy did and you, just, you have this conversation before? I think she's
3: right. It's a great idea.
2: And so then you go and the person who has less money orders at the lowest end of the menu because that's all they can afford, and you order from the high end of the <laughs> menu? I mean, that really – I'm serious. Well, I think what she's What kind talking, of thing does that fall into? Well,
3: if, if, if she's talking about – I thought she was talking about people that did have the means – you know, she was a little bit in the low end of the economic uh, ladder, and she's going out with people that are a little bit. No, she
2: said there should be an understanding. There I can only afford beforehand. so much. I know you yeah, can afford that's more. that's right. That kind of thing. I really believe in this notion that you know, uh, you know, pay according to your means. I mean, I was exaggerating a little with the W two thing, but I really believe if you have more money, then pay more money.
3: That's the solution no, to the thing. Yes, you know, I don't think that's of course right at it all. Is. No, I don't think that's right at all. Let's go to Stephanie and Beverly. Hi, Hi Stephanie. Stephanie. Hi. Yeah. So.
1: Recently, I was in a, a wedding, and it was a destination wedding, ah. um, and there were five girls total that were part of the bridal party, and three of the five are, like, very, very well off to
2: This do. is a big um, problem.
1: Like, yeah, so then the two of us, and, you know, we're I'm doing fine. I'm not, I don't think I'm on the lower end. I'm doing fine, but definitely, you know, it's already a destination wedding. Everything's already so expensive being in the wedding and then paying for the hotel and the dresses and all that comes along with that, you're, like, I would have to, you know, watch what I'm spending on. But the other three, it's just, they, you know, they're able to be frivolous, which is completely fine, you know, to each their own. It's, you know, not knocking it. But there was one, the day of the wedding, um, we had all walked down the aisle and then met back in a conference room. And I think total for the entire wedding party, there were about 50 people, including, you know, the mother of the bride, the aunts, uncles, everything. So the girl... Ordered fifty patron shots, and for everybody in the in the bridal party. And the bill came, and it was I think like five hundred dollars plus the tip for the patron shots. And you know she's the wealthiest of them all. Like she put it this way: she just like she's in her early thirties and just put an offer in on the house for one point seven million. Like that's how well off. And she said she's all charged us on Venmo to pay for half of the. Uh,
2: that was horrible.
1: And and the thing is, I was to state of honor, so I wasn't even, in, so I was so busy with the bride, like, prepping her for the everything else. I wasn't even in the room. I did end up getting a shot, but, like, well after, it was, like, the group shot. Like, everybody took it together, but I wasn't even there for that. I, I didn't even know she ordered it. You know, yes. so she did it and then charged us off.
2: Can I tell you, I am feeling terrible. physical discomfort. How about this compromise? That's if it turns out you don't contribute as much, you only get to walk down part of the aisle. What do you think?
3: about That's right. About, well, you only get half a dress. That is
2: horrible. I think that that's, is really horrible. Stephanie,
3: you know these these, desti- these weddings are becoming so extravagant. Remember, when you said that producer that worked for us that was going broke, John, because oh, he yeah. got invited to be the groomsman yes. in so many weddings, and you got to go fly to the destination. Oh, bachelor all his friends party. were getting married, right? And then you got you know, you got to go out to Vegas for the bachelor. Party and they're going to go to Chicago for the wedding. I can't believe. I I don't mean to criticize your friend, but that seems very rude. That is really, yeah. Bad. So so is Were the bridesmaids all gossiping about this, Stephanie? I bet they were.
1: One only one of them. The other two um, were kind of just like they were fine with it because they're also that's nothing to them, you know. And, and so it's it, so me and the other girl were kind of in the minority. It's not you know. Oh, I we think would have kind of looked like the, the jerk if we. Yeah. said anything. So I just, I paid it and I was like, all right, that's the final thing.
3: <laughs> the wedding is over. That's and, all. That's yeah. a great call, Stephanie. Thank you hey, very Stephanie, much. Thank J-
2: you. By the way, there is another solution. I what? mean, it depends on what out of control. Jason, one of our coworkers yep. said, getting back to the th- meal thing, you just tell your friends you work at GBH and public radio and they get it from that point. So <laughs> that'll be the end. Yeah, of that's his. a
3: good point. Look at that. He's talking about a bachelor party in New Orleans. You know, it's great. It if is you really can gross, by the way, what? that people
2: do that to friends and expect. I mean, it's sort of what Stephanie was just describing. It yeah. is totally insensitive know, but, and unfair. I know, but this
3: is like the new thing. It's happening all the time. Destination bachelorette parties. I know, and then, Destination if, you, but bachelorette then parties. if
2: you give a break to somebody, mm-hmm. I don't know how you do that exactly, it's embarrassing. You know, it's one thing if it's a one meal kind of thing, as I was just describing a minute ago, you have to be more sensitive when you're choosing a place and a. And a yeah whatever for Remember
3: Johnny to a second job in a home equity loan Is that really the he's Season one
2: became a cop. You're talking about that John, right? right? I That's know. right.
3: Absolutely. Let's go to Andy on Cape Cod. Hi, Hi Andy. Andy. How
2: are you? Hi.
5: i Good. Good. Yeah. I, so do,
3: um, I, I work as a... Oh.
2: Andy, we have a bad oh. connection. We're going to put you on hold. We're going to get back to you in one second in the hopes it's better. Where do you, you want to go next? Move around a little bit. Go ahead. Uh,
3: let's go to Susan and Newton. Hi, Susan. Hi there. Hi. Oh, thanks for taking my call. Sure. So...
9: I've experienced this now for a few years. I became single about five years ago, and suddenly I was in a much lower economic bracket than a lot of my friends, especially the married ones. And I've gone out to dinner with people and said to them before we've gone, look, you know, I can't really do, you know, grill, whatever it is. I can't. I just can't do another $50 dinner. Could we do something more modest? It never works. We always end up someplace where they get... Two bottles of the most expensive <laughs> red wine i get a salad
2: why are we laughing I mean, so what do you do car, what do you do
9: okay okay so i have i think i have a really good solution for this i when the bill comes i say oh my gosh i have so much cash in my pocket do you mind if i pay cash let me see what my share is and they hand me the bill and i figure out what my portion is and i put down an appropriate amount of cash and that's it. And I don't have to pay extra.
2: That's actually pretty clever. You
3: know, Susan, that's pretty clever. I was just looking at the email, and a couple of people have said that. You bring cash, and then you and then you look at your section, your portion, as you just said, because a lot of people are paying with credit cards, and then you volunteer well, to put the cash What's wrong front. with
2: a variation on Susan's clever idea? Why can't people just get separate checks when there's a huge? I mean, I don't like that. But it seems to be. Well, a I've
3: seen that do it. People Why can't you, you say it at the beginning? Just casually. You know, you casually? know who doesn't mostly? Who? I hate to say this. Who? Women, groups of women together. Really? We'll get separate checks, yeah. you yeah. dog. I am a sexist dog.
2: Hey, Susan, thank you. That's a very creative suggestion to a. Uh sort of serious issue. Hey, I mean it's, serious problem. It's not problems. that serious. Well, I didn't an mean issue, it was a then. serious issue, but
3: but by the way, is there it's anything not like more North fun, Korea. It's
2: not, is there anything more fun than going out to dinner?
3: It's fun. It's a blast. I love it. Exactly. Going out for dinner.
2: And so you don't want to put a damper on the whole thing by having this this differential thing that creates yeah. a friction but between friends, but I think it's friends. something
3: that really is a luxury that a lot of people can't afford to do, and and uh,
2: well, you it, make it more affordable. Well, for that's right. Then.
3: You can go out for a pizza or something. There's a lot of fun pizza joints.
2: Or if you go out for like an exotic dinner and somebody else can't afford it, tell them just get a salad or side <laughs> salad or something, and maybe bring a can of seltzer. Yeah, slide you know it what? in your bag you know and what? bring it over.
3: You can just say. Uh, th- 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 eat their rolls. I you don't just want eat my t- you just by eat the, the way, you know what you
2: can say to show you're generous yep. if you're making more?
3: Eat my rolls. <laughs> I mean, seriously, don't just eat yours. No, they're very filling rolls of butter. You can fill up with the rolls of butter. And you know what's really? cheap? nice little piece of pie for dessert? You can Excuse get away. me, she'd like
2: another glass of water. <laughs> I mean, there is a way to be sociable and friendly with people yeah. while but you're drinking, having a Yeah, the drinking is a big thing. Drinking is a big it, it, thing. Drinking
3: is a big thing because that's what it, the, really, the expense really adds up with the drinking. Let's go to Heath in Boston. What do you Hi, think, Heath? Heath? I think
2: we solved it now. Go ahead, Heath.
3: Yeah.
2: Hey. Hi, hey Hi there. Hi. Hi. Hey, um, a little something
11: odd
7: happened to us. What's that? We got an invitation from friends to go to a restaurant that's expensive. We never would go to a place like that in a part of town. We never would go to. Just far out, got to drive. And they said, we have a gift certificate. So we went, had a decent meal. It was fine. But then when the bill came, they handed the waiter their gift certificate and said, apply this to half of it. And then asked us to pay for our
6: half. Uh,
2: uh. That is really. how can some, So how did you feel about these people at that moment?
7: Well, I, I think it was not intended Wrong. It wasn't intended, hurtful, but it's made us think about it. Whenever we invite people and there's a gift certificate, we always explicitly say up front, and we have a gift certificate we'd like to share.
2: Yeah, I would hope so. To- <laughs> you know what you that's should have said? Really, I mean, I don't want to give you advice, terrible. but I will. You should have said at that moment, hey, I got to go to the men's room and then just split. Just get out of there. And let them. St- that is horrible, by the way. Would you do something like that? He, thank you. Very no, that's much, terrible. Nicole.
3: That's terrible. Now we just got an email um, from. I think this is from. Is this from Kate, who says, "Eat like a millennial. Even if we have money, we split the split the check based on what you ate." So that's what uh, she says she does, or he says. But I don't. I don't. I think like it should that. be based
2: on what you can afford to do. I don't think there's anything wrong with that at all. I mean, as long as you do it in a way that doesn't make the person making less money feel,
3: you have to figure it out. If people say, "Let's go to," I don't know, uh, Capital Grill, Mm. you basically say, "I can't."
2: Well, then don't go to Capital Grill. Exactly. exactly. Well, you shouldn't
3: put a person
2: who's lower income in a position to have to say no. Yeah.
3: Well, it's kind of. Good manners. I mean, I don't think if you knew someone was barely making the rent, you wouldn't invite them to go to the mm. Capitol Grill unless you said, you know, something. You just, you just got an award, or you just had a bad day, or you just got divorced, or whatever. I'm, gonna, I want to treat you for a present. I'm going to take you to the Capitol Grill. That kind of thing. I mean, I think that's fine. we just great. buy a
2: six pack and go to D'Angelo's. <laughs> we got to get out. We're, we're done with this, Marjorie. Okay, we're we done with this. We solved nothing yet again.
3: We're moving on.
2: There were a couple. That paying with cash thing, I thought was a brilliant idea, but that that woman suggested a couple of mm-hmm. seconds ago.
3: Up next. We're going to talk to WGBH's executive arts editor, Jared Bowen, about the latest art happenings and a couple of movies, or at least one movie, around town. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio.
2: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Brady and Marjorie and live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. And Amy Schumer's new movie, it's called I Feel Pretty. Is her message to women a mixed message?
11: I've always wondered what it feels like to be just undeniably pretty. Are
8: you okay? Okay. You hit your head pretty hard. That's me. That's me. Oh my God, do you see this? Yes. I'm
2: beautiful! Amy Schumer is getting tons of backlash from people who have only seen the trailer. That includes me, saying it's not a body-positive movie. Rather, it's about body-shaming. Joining us is someone who's actually seen the whole film. He joins us to put the outrage into perspective. I think that'd be GBH's executive arts editor, host of Open Studio, the wildly-tan Jared Bowen. How yeah, are you, Jared? You look beautiful, great. Jared. Tough life. Yeah. So, so hey, you look great. You he look does.
3: fantastic. Thank you.
6: not jealous at all. It's, okay. it's been off like four weeks. Yeah. has <laughs> not been four weeks. How long have you been <laughs> off? It was a little bit more than a week. Okay, like, fine. closer to two weeks, but not exactly okay, two weeks. Smart. Nice to see you. Welcome back. Okay, Thank you.
3: so so uh, first, please, tell us about the movie, and then tell us about the backlash.
6: So the film is called I Feel Pretty, and it'll be very familiar to Boston audiences because it was shot here last yep. year. And as you just heard from the trailer, Amy Schumer plays this uh, woman who's working in a basement essentially working on a website and she, she w- is watching the movie Big one night and she wants to have her own wish fulfilled so she goes out to a, a fountain and essentially wishes to become a supermodel hits her head and wakes up and thinks that she is somebody, she sees herself as somebody she was not before well the reality is when she's looking in the mirror she's seeing the exact same Amy Schumer uh, and they have done nothing to change her figure, to, to do any CG to make her look different but what essentially this movie is, is she's finding a newfound confidence here. And this is how she sees herself differently because she suddenly takes comfort in who she is and she owns herself. And because she has this personality, she becomes a magnet to everyone around her. So, this is the problem with this backlash, which I wasn't even aware of because I'd like to go into films without having read anything so I can make my own judgment. But then I came out and I read about all of these people criticizing this movie that they haven't even seen, which is completely absurd. It, it, there are flaws in the movie, there are storylines that prop up and go nowhere. Um, um, and it, it's not completely uh, fleshed out. However, this this notion of confidence and, and people just trying to, f- to, to get rid of all the insecurities that settle upon us because of everything around us and our world and communities and families and societies. And just own yourself is a really positive message.
2: First of all, I'm so glad you said that for two reasons. One, I love Amy Schumer. And two, I read, oh, I haven't seen it. I've only seen the two minutes and 54 second trailer. Even from the trailer, I had the exact same reaction you did. It 's not about I mean, at least to me it wasn 't about body shaming or my god, if you 're slightly overweight and you 're not you know classically beautiful and life is worthless I mean to me it 's all about that it 's all about. That inner thing that she developed. She happens to get it because she hits her head. So I'm so glad to hear you say that, actually. I hope that's what most... You know, it's one of these things. I would bet the vast majority of people are trashing her. And it is epic. It is all over uh, uh, online. Haven't seen the movie yet. And I hope when they, if they do choose to see it, that they end up with a conclusion. You do, because that's where I think it is, too.
3: Okay, so Jared, with a You don't wonderful- have an opinion on that? Uh, on the movie? Yeah. Uh, well, I haven't seen the movie. You don't
2: have to have it, But you know. I
3: did see, uh, obviously, the, the backlash, so I don't feel, until I've seen it, I can really weigh in here. Uh, and the trailer leaves you with a different impression than the movie, correct? Not me, no. Oh, in no? In fact,
2: I said
6: the trailer, I had the exact same impression. Okay. He did.
3: Okay. And well, the other
6: thing that people need to realize is that I, I think, if especially if you know Amy Schumer by her show, she is somebody who is very careful about how she she's very careful about satire and in the messages mm. that she's sending. She'd never put herself in a film like that.
3: Yeah. No. I I think she's terrific. I remember there was a big brouhaha about her being in the bathing suit. Remember on the cover of was it. Sp- but that was
6: almost the opposite thing. That was almost an opposite criticism yeah, of her.
3: Yeah, people were criticizing the fact that she was not a 90-pound exactly, model. Exactly, the exactly. They
6: put her in this magazine, and she willingly participated in the magazine, but wasn't told it was a special, let's celebrate other women issue. She thought she was just a woman like every yeah. other woman who was going in the issue.
3: You know, that's one of the things I like about Oprah's magazine. If you ever look at it, she has a lot of pictures in there of models and other women looking <laughs> fantastic that are not 90 pounds, and I love the fact that she does that. In a does regular anybody basis. buy
2: that magazine? I've seen it a hundred times, but always in the checkout line at Whole Foods. Does anybody actually, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know. even know what's in the magazine.
3: Well, it's very uplifting I stuff. I flipped through the pictures. It's, it is? Yes. It's, it's, well, she's it's a pretty positive Her person, whole positive though. kind of thing, and I think it's really, I like it. I think it's a lot of good stuff in there. So
2: were you in Vienna? I, I, I'm sorry to delve in, in, in Vienna. all your prayers. Were you in Vienna? Was is that in, where, yeah, part of where you were? I was yeah. in Vienna, So yeah. did you do anything useful that had anything to do with your <laughs> career while you were in Vienna?
6: I, I, I saw a lot of great art. Oh, you did? Palaces okay. And and uh, I mean, the highlight for me really was, uh, because, and I know that we'll talk about this here, too, is this is, the centenary of uh, Klimt and Schiele, Gustav Klimt and Egon Schiele, two of Austria's greatest uh, art uh, so the MFA
2: They're both the MFA too, Yeah, yes? there's a okay. Klimt and Schiele drawing oh. show
6: that comes from uh, Vienna's Albertina Museum, and I went to the Belvedere Museum, which is housed in a palace, and absolutely gorgeous. It's where you'll find, uh, I, I think, some of the most well-known Gustav Klimt paintings, including The Kiss, uh, which is probably his most famous, outside of The Woman in Gold, which is now here in New York, uh, but... It, I it just, I had such a great time there, and it, it's shoulder season, so I was able to spend a lot of time in galleries in front of these great works of art without being interrupted by a lot of people. And uh, I saw these great Egon Schiele paintings. It, it was just, it's a storybook city, and I loved being there.
2: And, and we were explicitly told not to ask you about the uh, movies you watch on the plane. Oh. <laughs> so let me ask you about the movies you watch on the yeah. plane. On. Are you a Salt Are
3: we moving from there so soon?
2: From where Vienna? From, you want to stay in Vienna well, for a I while? Well, I wasn't
3: want to stay in Vienna. I wanted to stay. The, the fact that you mentioned that this uh, Sheila's got um, the uh, work in the MFA. Right. so well. we get back to
2: America, but it's fine. Oh, Let's the, do it now. Bad, Let's do
3: it now. The bad boy artist thing and how he was once arrested for untoward behavior. With the minor. Is, yes, and this has become a big deal, of course, because we just had the incident at the ICA, uh, where Nicholas Nixon, who had those photographs, which I had adored. Uh, the Brown sisters, of his wife and her three sisters, as they age from teenagers right through uh, late in life. The the first picture was taken, I think, in 1975, and uh, there was a story about him being basically a sexual abuser and harasser of students at the Mass College of Art. He retired, or he quit, and then he asked the ICA to take his photographs down. So this is a big issue in the art world. The contemporary uh, photographer an expose about his bad behavior, and the photographer that we knew, well, a painter, who did these bad things years ago.
6: Well, so let me back up. So the the story that we see at Klimt and Sheila at the MFA, it's called Drawn, and it's uh, uh, about these artists. They had about nearly 30 years between them, Klimt being the older artist, uh, and and Egon Sheila being a a younger artist who who saw this great mentor, even to such an extent that, uh, uh, as the curator told me, um, upon one of their earliest meetings, uh, Sheila said to him, what if I trade you several of my drawings for one of yours? And Klimt said to him in response, why would you do that? You're the better artist. And so this is the kind of relationship that they had uh, for the next few years until both of them died. Uh, Sheila was only in his 20s. In 1918, he died of Spanish flu. Uh, Klimt had uh, died earlier uh, of of a stroke and then uh, pulmonary issues, but also probably related to the Spanish flu. But this show looks at them in companion with each other and and how each of them were as artists. And Klimt was uh, very forward for his time. He he would depict uh, people in, in... all of their people-dom, you know, in sexuality and masturbation and uh, interactions. And Sheila did the same. If you look at his paintings, especially of himself and how he looked at himself, he would do self-portraits, he would do nudes. But Sheila was arrested, uh, and he was imprisoned for about three weeks. They actually have some of the pieces he created while he was in prison in this MFA show, and he's even documented them with some of the agony he felt by being imprisoned. He was charged with uh, abduction, molestation, and immorality charges. There was a young girl who would run away from home uh, into the home of Sheila and his girlfriend. She was later uh, released. Uh, It's not clear what exactly happened there. The immorality charge pertains, the other charges were dropped, the immortality charge, uh, uh, immorality charge, I should say, pertained to some of the nude paintings he had in his home. But in this Me Too moment, the MFA has had to consider artists and their history and some of the information that swirls around them. In this case, they decided that they still wanted to move forward with the show, but they would do so with context and labels that explain exactly what happened.
2: About about his situation? About I mean, this, his situation. So are, well, that relates to what Marjorie and I have been discussing nonstop, I guess, off and on. Not nonstop. About this Nixon thing. About, as Marjorie said, contemporary things, which we all, not we all, many of us think should be relevant to the person's art. And historical, let's call it bad behavior. So does that mean, if you've spoken to the MFA people, are they going to examine the history of every artist who is on their walls, regardless of how far back he or she goes? I assume what's good for This guy is good for everybody, right?
6: Exactly. I I think they'll now consider things on a case by case case basis. That's what Edward Saywell, who is the chief of exhibitions at the MFA, told me. Uh, So when you have something that that seems so radical as this situation, they will look at it. Of course, you can't. There's only so much interrogation of history that you can do. So that's why they decided. Let's go ahead with the show. Provide this information. I will say I reached out to the MFA yesterday because I know that they have two Nicholas Nixon photographs up on view right now in their show, Unexpected Families and they have made the choice to keep those photographs up. I looked at them today online. One is a photograph of a woman holding the photograph of a baby, and the other is of a man and a young girl, uh, again, fitting into the seam of families. Here's what the MFA said to me. There's no plan to remove them at this time. We're speaking openly and directly about the current role of the museum and the importance, the duty we feel, of being a resource to our community. Are they uh,
2: posting anything? like the IC- We should say the ICA did not... Pulled down the Nixon no, exhibit. The they Brown had a Sisters. Plaque on the wall. No, but, but even after that, they didn't cancel the no, exhibit. Nixon did. He asked that it be yeah. canceled early because he said it couldn't be seen on its merits anymore. So are they doing, are they announcing at the MFA, or is there any posting of? What the current controversy you know, is or no? I,
6: I actually didn't ask him about that. Um, but about the conversation, about conversation, they did say that they're considering everything on a case by case basis, actively listening to our audiences and, and engaging in ongoing dialogue. Um, but that's a good point. I didn't ask them if they posted but you know, signage.
3: This raises a whole new question. Yes, okay. It does. It, not just about men that had were sexual abusers, but about men that were racists or women that were racist or Nazis or artists. A lot of whom have, and you would know better than I, have some questionable history. So, do we now accompany all exhibits of their work with a uh, disclaimer?
6: Well, uh, and I, th- I, think, uh, I think it makes sense what the MFA is say- saying, in that we'll, this will be case by case, and we'll have a dialogue around each situation, because yeah. the situations vary, don't they? I mean, especially in what we're seeing in, in, in current events right now, and I mean, not everybody is to the degree of a Harvey Weinstein, but yes, it's still assault, and yes, it's still harassment no matter how you look a lot at a lot of these situations. So uh, I think they're going to listen to what people say. They'll listen to what uh, experts internally feel and make decisions. And Because this is also very subjective. Right. We've seen that people have very different interpretations of events and, and, and what is actionable and what isn't.
3: Yeah, and you still, you still want... I mean, I, I, no one comes to mind particularly, but if you think of someone who's a great artist or a great composer, um, I guess I want to be able to decide myself to some, whether I want to see the movie or look at the art or whether I don't, I don't want someone else to decide Yeah, but you might me. argue,
2: I agree with that completely but you might also, unless something is high profile, like the Nixon thing was in local newspapers, you might not even know I didn't know anything about what you were describing which was Chile, is that how you pronounce? Egon Sheely, yeah. Egon- yes uh, I, I didn't know anything about this until uh, we were preparing to see uh, to talk with Jared today, so, but the, you know, the question also is, you know, where do you draw the some art leader maybe it's you I'm serious. There's got to be some sort of standards that uh, that are recommended to museums. How far back do you go? As Marjorie said, well, I think we would all agree that sex, sexual abuse and beyond is something that is relevant to our consideration. Again, some may choose to see the art anyway. How far back do you go? How much do you consider the Well, with sexual abuse, you never consider the, the times. Racism, whatever, whatever other wildly inappropriate behavior you're engaged in, do we want to know but, what do we want to know and what do we not want to know But you
3: know there were totally different ideas about what you could do with young women 100 That's a great point ago. too I mean, it was not the property and all that kind of terrible stuff and children and everything else. So it's very complicated.
6: Right, and we don't know because we're reading second, third-hand accounts. We don't know. It's not as if you can go back and talk to the authorities who arrested Sheila or talk to Sheila himself. So it's difficult to examine a lot of these. A lot of Picasso's name keeps coming up. Yeah, Picasso, right. that always comes up. Do? Caravaggio's name comes up. He's a, for all we know, he was a murderer. Caravaggio so, uh, was a murderer? Yes, wow. absolutely. And so do you Didn't still have that. his paintings on the wall? I mean, so it, but in his time, I that was I, I think okay. No it's okay. There, yeah,
3: yeah <laughs> a body here, a body there. What did Picasso do that was so terrible? Everybody keeps mentioning him.
6: Well, I, I think clearly his treatment of women.
3: And he was a body, philanderer, was not a or a, a philanderer. I don't think and anybody
2: the, wants a, to know about philandering.
3: With, well, uh, that's I mean, what I'm asking. If it was it was it philandering, or was it was it sexual abuse or raping
6: people? Uh, or? I, I don't know the extent of okay. it. But just not uh, didn't treat women well. Okay.
2: We're talking to uh, Jared, uh, but that was exhausting. You know, I was, uh, you know what I'm really interested. In? There's a lot of stuff we're not going to get to, but the, at the Museum of African American History, we learn, or at least some of us are disabused of a notion that I've grown up with, which is that the most photographed person is that the 19th century. I always get it wrong. Yeah. We all knew it was Abraham Lincoln, obviously. But obviously, is wrong. Is that n- not correct? It's so
6: wrong. Isn't this a great story? I love great great this. Absolutely yeah. fascinating. No, instead, the most photographed American of the 19th century was Frederick Douglass. Mm. Of course, he was the sl- born a slave in Maryland. Became he was a born abolitionist leader right here in Massachusetts, in New Bedford, before coming to Boston yes. um, and uh, speaking at the African American meeting house, which is at the Af- Museum of African American History. Uh, now, today, you can see this uh, exhibition picturing Frederick. Frederick Douglass and see Uh, The representation of him in photography. He was a man who, when Abraham Lincoln was running for president, Matthew Brady photographed Lincoln, and suddenly this dark horse candidate won the election, in part because of the Matthew Brady Mm -hmm. photograph, because Americans suddenly knew who the candidate was. They could see him. They could connect with him, and Frederick Douglass understood that, and especially as a black man in America, he understood that if he could get in front of people, if people could see him, they could understand him, just relate to him on that visceral level, then that could change the tide of perception. And it did. This is
2: just about at the time well, the photography also, was invented, yes, wasn't yeah.
3: it? Well, also because he was always extremely careful about how he posed in these mm-hmm. photographs. He was always uh, looking serious. He was always in a, a beautiful attire. Um, it, see, a picture is a young man with kind of one of those neck things, almost like a, a turtleneck, but it wasn't a turtleneck. And then later in his life, he. he I, I don't think I've ever seen him smiling in a photograph. Maybe I missed one. But it's always, this is a dignified man of, of great substance and that's what comes
6: through in all these pictures. And that was all very much by design. After he got through this notion of being in front of the camera, he learned about framing, he learned about lighting, he I learned how this. to that's dress. Great. I mean, you, you know he would make the best dress list on Vanity yeah. Fair's best dress list. And he he's very handsome. He kept up, he was, he was, and he was a celebrity and he was considered very handsome, considered very well dressed. He kept up with the latest trends in terms of facial hair. He knew exactly how to present himself and Marjorie, you just landed on a salient point about the smile. He did that very deliberately because there were the caricatures of the smiling black person and he wanted to counter those perceptions so in this exhibition of 170 photographs there's only one in which you'll find him smiling taken the year before he died and it was for they they believe it was taken for uh, family reasons. How do you look smiling? Uh, Happy, Happy, but by by the way,
2: do you know why this doesn't apply to Douglas? Based on what you just uh, uh, explained to us, do you know why virtually nobody is smiling in photographs from this time? We discussed this a few months ago. I don't know what the context was. Do you know why?
3: Bad teeth.
4: Teeth.
2: Bad teeth. Well, the other issue. There was really crappy dental care at that time. I don't have any idea. no, he said there was another motivation. Yeah, but I was here.
3: wondering, we said the smiling photograph, how were his teeth? Uh, you know what? I
6: didn't notice. Oh, okay. That means they were
3: good. If you didn't notice, they are probably good.
6: <laughs> but uh, early on, especially in, in the early days of photography, you had to have a sort of a neck brace. Situate yourself in a neck brace because it took so long to take the photograph. Oh, yeah. So you really oh, that's move. great. So I think it would strain your facial muscles if you were smiling for the entire time. But, Jim, to your point, there are 155 photographs. I love these numbers. 155 photographs of General Custer, 123 of Walt Whitman. And 122 of Lincoln, and again 170 of Frederick Douglass. So Lincoln was not even number poses. two.
2: Nope,
4: I didn't know that. If he that's had
6: continued on in the presidency, for sure he would have been. You know, we
2: only have 30 seconds we need, left. We need the embarrassing this, this movies is, on the it, plane. No, I know, but we're not going <laughs> to get to that. The immigrant thing that's going to be projected on buildings—that's going to still be around next week, right? I don't. We don't have time. It will be. Yeah, it we'll will talk be. About it next unless week. I am it's all just so—it's yeah. really exciting. I should say. And by the way, sing that thing which I love, which you've been a participant in since. They want to. What's the deal with this?
6: Uh, so, so we're back on the, on the, the season two. You'll catch on Friday. Friday night, right before Open Studio. By and the
2: way, if you haven't seen this, I'll do the pitch. If you don't, these are some of the most exciting, full of life, great voices. And all these choirs, and, and it, it just, it's just—it's fabulous. I love it.
6: And maybe I shouldn't say this, but I, I felt like we saw the most energy and, and the biggest variety in groups this, this year. season. It was great. Really, the tapings were really, really fun this really year. Really
2: excited. It's a great show. It's really a fun show. So watch it.
3: Okay, Jared Bowen is WGBH's executive art editor and host of the TV series Open Studio, which you can catch Friday nights at 8:30 right here on WGBH Channel Two. Jared Bowen, thank you very much. Do you have time to say what he's doing in Open Studio Friday night?
6: Uh, really we, fast. We will take you to uh, the. He doesn't know uh, <laughs> to Fantastical doesn't know political it. out at the Pittsburgh Art Museum. And uh, also, we'll show you the pictures that Jim was just talking about, the projections oh, the of Im- immigrants Bradley. all across Boston. Oh,
3: fantastic. Okay, thank you for listening to another edition of Boston Public Radio. Thank you to people that came down to the thank library. Thank you all we really for coming, yes. appreciate it. Tomorrow, Governor Charlie Baker is going to be here with, here with us for an hour to take our questions and yours. What's on television, Jim Brady?
2: Well, we're going to continue this discussion about white fear of African Americans. It was started in Renee Graham, Tina Opie from Babson, Michael Kerr. Carr- Former head of the NAACP here, now on the national board. Uh, Pulitzer Prize winning former Globe columnist Eileen McNamara has written a spectacular new book about Eunice Kennedy. It is great, and she was great. Eileen will be with me tonight, too.
3: I want to thank our crew Chelsea Murray, Amanda McGowan, Tori Bedford, Jason Toreski, Molly Begon, Christina Biani, our engineer John, the Claw Parker, and our on site engineer is Glenn Heath. Thank you very much for listening. Please tune again tomorrow and have a wonderful afternoon.